before we do our actual intro, though, what we need to do is we need to thank Jess. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Jess. Jess, who signed up to our Patreon. Aw, Jess, is, you're the best. Yeah, who's the only one who's done so, so far. Uh, Jess has a band. Let's give her a plug. Jess has a band. Really? Yeah, they're called the Maggie Pills. They're I love like it. A, um, I would like sort of an indie garage rock, uh, grungy kind of band. They got a Bandcamp cool. page. They're on the Spotify. So yeah, check out the Maggie Pills and support Jess because she supports us. <laughs> it's Discworld. It's Discworld. Podcast analysis. Yeah. So I'm Josh. And I'm Alice. And we're the Unseen Academicals. Yep. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and this week, we're going to be talking about 1991's Witches Abroad, the third book in the Witches series and the 12th overall Discworld book. Uh, we're in the informal coven of Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and newly anointed fairy godmother, Magrat Garlic, must contend with the power of fairy tales on their way to the New Orleans-esque city of Genua. Genua, was that how you'd say? Genua? Genua? I think it's Genua. Genua. To confront Granny Weatherwax's sister Lilith and save Princess Emberella from having to marry a prince and go to the ball. Uh, we're going to use the book to explore the nature of stories, the power of parody, familiars, classic fairy tales, mirrors, the Wizard of Oz, carnism, way too much about Sleeping Beauty, cultural chauvinism, and much, much more. Uh, but first, in honour of the RuPaul's Drag Race recap podcast, Alice, please tell me two things you liked about the book and one thing you did not. Okay, I've broken the rule and put two things I don't like, but... Okay, so hang on. Overall, you're not feeling this one. No, I've got two for each. I just, oh, okay. I had to two have... and two. Yeah. I thought we were having another weird system no, thing. No, no, no. I'm like, have we're I made good. a huge mistake? You're fine. Okay. So <laughs> okay. you got two and two. Yep. Uh, two things I liked. I loved Magrat. Uh-huh. That's just... That's it. We, we will discuss, yep. I'm sure. She gets a whole section. Um, yes. <laughs> and I really enjoyed the Granny Weatherwax gambling scene. Oh, okay. I just really felt that... Uh, and I have lots to say about the dildo jokes, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have their own section unless you. I noticed you left it out, so I, I found all the quotes and put it in okay, <laughs> just good. for. Uh... Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, gotta have those dildos in there. Anyway, <laughs> um, two things I didn't like: the weird racism along the way. Really, uh-huh. really yep. Whoa, smacks you in the mouth constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to use a word that's going to make you make a face. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that word I've come up with is it's very Shrek esque. And I know Pratchett uh-huh. came first. Yeah, yeah, he sure did. And Shrek is later, and it, yeah, blah blah yeah. blah. But the whole time I go, ah, Shrek, Shrek. Well, Shrek, Shrek is Shrek. very Pratchett esque. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I have some Shrek revelations to come. Oh god. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, yes, yeah. it's, it's Shrek and Shrek 2. Yeah. Shrek-esque. Shrek-tacular? Shrek, mm, just Shrek-esque. I know Shrek's become like a bit of a meme now. Oh, it's a big meme. I don't want our reverence for Shrek to be like, ah, Shrek, like, Shrek came out when I was, what, 10, 11 years old? And I would have been Thought it was six. real good. It was great, it is Loved great. the first one, um, never really got along with any of the sequels, even as a 13, 12-year-old. second one's okay. I hear the second one's the best, but I don't really want it the I best. I think the first one's the best. When I he kicks so. open the dunny door, like, you can't. That's the best. <laughs> Somebody um, wants... <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're getting a bit memey. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, but I do I do, do like the at least the original Shrek. And yes, this is doing Shrek. Postmodernism. Yeah. yeah. yeah Postmodern fairy tales. Yeah. Um, which we're going to talk a lot about. Hey, um, I have a question about yeah, dwarf, dwarf bread to come, but I don't know where uh, to put I don't, that. I don't really have a section about dwarf bread. It's just a lot on it, constantly. It's, it's a Lord of the Rings thing. That was the bread that keeps them on. Yeah. It. Yeah, okay. And it's just making fun of it because it's meant to be hard and got it. shit. I mean, this does, in the later Discworld books, you have the Scone of Stone. In fact, <laughs> I don't know if you ever got to that one, but 
it becomes an ongoing thing. But yeah, there, there's no, nothing really more to that here than they're just making fun of. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, so that was the, you did two and two? Yeah, sorry, I broke the rules. What but are yours? It's meant to be a rough guy. Don't feel <laughs> too bad. Uh, for me, well, my one thing I like is Magrat. Yeah. Love Magrat. And really did not vibe with her at all the, my first few times through the series, which I think I said on the last podcast. Um, but yeah, really enjoying her on this reread. Loving her character arc. Loving her in the next book, which we'll get to. But yeah, Mag, so Magrat's up there. We'll talk more about her. Um, my second thing I liked was the, the end, the last third of the book. <laughs> Which is very broad, but just when it kicks in to like the final action sequence, mm-hmm. it really goes. Like yeah. it takes off the confrontation in in Genua with the with the snakes and everything, and Granny versus Lilith and Miss Goggle. It's just I, I just think that is expertly done. <laughs> See, it was, but I really enjoyed all the lead up stuff of them just right. having fun on the road. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're we're both saying that it's. This is a much better book than Weird Sisters. Right? Oh my god! Yes. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> um, yeah. This. This. I was a bit worried. It's got structure and plot, and it's not just <laughs> constant bad references to Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we're a lot more positive about this, and I think I think it's definitely better written. I think he's really found his voice in the world with this one. Hmm. But it, just as far as like action set pieces at the end, I, I just thought it was sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's the two things I like. The, the one thing I, I disliked, which I think we've got a bit of overlap here, is Granny's weird imperialism and yeah. sh- cultural chauvinism and conservatism. Stop that, Granny. Yeah, um, which we'll talk about. Now, I think we're recording this now, so we'll see how it goes. The plan with this one is because, turns out I, we have so much to go through and so much to say about this book, because rather than even with Weird Sisters, which was... Um, looking at Shakespeare, it's still confined to just Shakespeare. Shakespeare. This is, what if all fairy tales? Yep. So I think this has the, when we were saying um, Weird Sisters has the most limited scope of maybe any book, it's contained in the kingdom, it's focusing on Macbeth with a few other references. Whew, I should take a breath. Um, <laughs> this one I think maybe has the broadest scope of any Discworld book. They literally trek across the country from like Scotland-esque yeah. North England to New Orleans yeah. um, and go through an entire genre of um, stuff along the way. So there's a lot to cover here. So I think the way we're going to do it is this is going to be broken into two parts, Mm -hmm. which I'm hoping rather than coming out a month apart like the other episodes, we'll drop one now and we'll drop one in the middle of the month. So in a fortnight. Today we're going to be covering everything on the way to Genoa, so on the road, Mm -hmm. and the fairy tales and things they look at there. And then next episode will be Genoa and everything after. That's the idea. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. I mean... But that's that's the plan. So we'll talk more about. I think the Granny's conservatism stuff really kicks in. Yeah, when she in January. So that'll probably be safe for next episode. Um, but yeah, so we we like this book. That's reassuring. So let's get into it then. Um, so yeah, as with the other ones, I'm going to start by talking about the reception to the novel. The Like Weird Sisters um, is is very highly regarded. Mm-hmm. It's another book that Andrew Ann Butler gives a five out of five rating in his Ooh. Pocket Essentials Guide, calling it great fun, which I would agree with. <laughs> yeah. Um, I haven't actually been able to find or access any reviews from around the time of publication. Weirdly, these are really hard to find. Um, I did find a 1993 article in the Christian magazine, <laughs> The Third Way, oh, God. Uh, where Pratchett refers to a Sunday Times article. So we've got like three layers of reference here, uh, where Pratchett refers to a Sunday Times review wherein the writer described him as talentless, unable to draw characters, unfunny, and then the review ended up by suggesting the world might be a better place without him. See, that's very unchristian. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, I have not been able to source the original of this review. I can't find any reference to it that's not here, um, but I did find another 1993 article on Pratchett by Barry Phelps 
in the Antiquarian Book Monthly Review, which also refers to a Sunday Times review, which is abroad, which concluded that Pratchett gamely jests that occasionally he gets accused of literature, but I cannot, for the supernatural life of me, imagine by whom. It's a burn. So this review seems to be out there. I can't find it. Anything I can find from the Sunday Times is from Masquerader after, and they, they are very reverent of Pratchett. Well, they would have been reviewed, so... I can't find anything. Yeah, weird. Yeah, um, but obviously, like, he hasn't reached that untouchable stage that we saw with Unseen Academicals, where we thought that was a subpar book, but everyone's going, oh, but he's Terry Pratchett, though, and it's amazing, and no one can write like him. This is pretty early on. It's it's the 12th book in the series, which seems like a lot, but we're still only six years into the, the thing, so... And it's comedic fantasy, so it's already not been taken that seriously by literature reviewers i imagine mm-hmm. so i did find a joint review of witches abroad and small guards by gregory freely in the washington post from 1994 where he describes both books as labored compared to pratchett's earlier um shorter writing um but yeah you and i both like this book and i think this has become one of his most revered um i was already talking last week about how there was so much more about weird sisters than there was about equal rights there is so much more about witches abroad than there is like i think this is the big one okay um, I hope it's the big one, because I cannot keep uh, a Weird Sisters and Witches Abroad level of research up. And having looked ahead, there, there's a little bit on Lords and Ladies, uh, almost nothing on Masquerade and Carpet Joggum. So I think, yeah, they, these two are where he hits his sort of academic peak. Yep. But yeah, we're both really positive about this book. And one of the things we were equally positive about was McGrath. We love her. She's the best. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of that is, because I've been re-listening to these as the audiobooks, which are read by Nigel Planer, who plays Neil the Hippie in The Young Ones. Do you know uh, The Young Ones? Nope, but okay. <laughs> uh, well, there, there's a character. He's Neil. He's like this downer hippie who's always cooking lentils. Uh, yeah, so I think um, McGrath being voiced by Neil from The Young Ones is doing a bit of heavy lifting there but yeah okay. i'm responding to a character i really like her in this book where she's she's on a mission of self-discovery and she's she's doing yen buddhism i did yeah. like that as a joke <laughs> um and she's also, she's doing her karate yeah and you're the karate expert so yeah. i don't know if you had I, anything to say about nothing her at all i saw okay. her i went back through i'm like she's doing karate she's just doing karate. that's it well she's trying to find herself and yeah yeah that's okay. How people saw that as happening, like you do martial arts. So nothing, nothing to say about the karate. Sorry, I I looked. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's cool that uh, Magda does karate. I I think it's meant to be silly that she's doing karate. Well, that's the thing. He's making fun of her the whole time by being like, "Oh, this silly vegetarian woman who's always picking on the others and saying they're not woke enough." But actually, she ends up being the most (laughs) likable character for us. No, yes, I'd like to think that I'm the Granny Weatherwax, but I'm definitely the McGrath. Mm. So. Yeah, I think that I want to be the McGrath, but maybe I'm just the nanny. <laughs> we can both be McGrath. You aspire to McGrath. Yeah. That's dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm nanny just wandering around being like, what's a sex object? <laughs> yeah, when, when I'm like, I'm probably the McGrath, I'm like, I'm also nanny <laughs> <laughs> right? Just lying around being like, ha, 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 that sounded like a dick. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Pratchett doesn't approve of this journey of self-discovery. So as Karen Sayer observes in her essay on the witches in the Guilty of Literature collection, McGrath's inability to change her appearance has as much to do with her... Oh, I've used inability twice in the same sentence. Has as much to do with her inability to live up to her other feminist ideals of inner strength and self-assurance oh. um, as to her body's innate incapacity to take on the glamour she desires. In trying to live up to the ideals of modern femininity, she fails to see that she really ought to be herself rather than a pretty here-it-comes here, here it comes, simulacrum. 
Okay, here we go. Part two, we're going to have to do a deep okay. dive on simulacrums because it keeps coming up because uh, postmodernism. I also just said it then, I realized from editing that I've been saying simulacrums and simulacras, but simulacra is the plural of simulacra. Oh. So I just, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't write us emails. <laughs> um, and you also see this reflected in the, the snake women. Yep. Um, that like their appearance has been changed, but they're still snakes inside, right? Yep. Um, that you can't change yeah it's all about what's inside and this is again the stuff with when we were talking about nut and the performative gender things and unseen academicals that pratchett is about authenticity is Mm -hmm. his thing but he does not think a performance as much as he's on board with this third wave feminism gender performity thing and as much as the witches like granny weatherwax and nanny og are performing their witchcraft with their hats and their dress he, he there's some kind of tension there where he recognizes the importance of of, of performance, mm-hmm. but emphasizes inner authentic, authenticity that has to come with, from within. He's all about self-assurance, and I guess the difference is that Granny Weatherwax is so self-assured that she can manipulate that, whereas McGrath is trying to define herself from the outside in. Granny and Nanny are going from the inside out. Yeah, and and Granny and Nanny make it very difficult for McGrath to get, gain any space there to actually do it. Like, she says, I'm going to, I'm a fairy godmother now, and I'm off, and I'm going to fairy godmother, and they say, no, you're not, we will come with you. Which mm. and then sort of keep projecting that self onto her as well, which I think makes it extra hard for her. Yeah, and look, I get it because people who have like crystals and and flowers <laughs> and things, I'd be like, you're insufferable and ingenuine, and I hate you. But at the same time, like from a philosophical standpoint, I'm like, Magrat should be trying to shape herself through the way she expresses herself. Yeah, and I guess the point is that she hasn't found herself yet, and I think this comes good in the next book where she definitely well, finds herself. That's part of the process. This one, okay. Yeah, yeah, I, and this leans towards some of the conservatism stuff with the older witches that is definitely in there deliberately mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about later. But that there there is a value judgment being placed on this discovery. Whereas, yeah, the discovery is part of the process, and I guess that conflicts with Granny Weatherwax, who, as we'll see in Lords and Ladies, mm. um, has always known who she is. Okay. Mm, but if you don't know who you are, you gotta, you gotta find yourself sometimes. Exactly. And I had blue hair for a year. Crap. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have blue hair now if my hair wasn't falling uh, out. <laughs> it's luscious so long, you're yeah. fine. But yeah, and this. This difference in value judgment is drawn out in the comparisons to Granny Weatherwax and, and the other older witches because McGrath was trained by Goody Wemper, may she mm-hmm. rest in peace, uh, who was a research witch. And in the 2004 New Discworld Companion, which is co-authored by Pratchett and Stephen Briggs, they describe research witchcraft as a small but very valuable side of the craft through which many witches of an inquiring mind have, down the centuries, experimented with thousands of different ingredients. And indeed, Goody Wemper died in an accident while testing whether a broomstick could survive, having its bristles pulled out one by one in midair. Um, so this is this is almost the the wizard model of witchcraft, I guess. Well, or, she's practicing that kind of yeah magic. Yeah, we never came up with like a proper term for it because we were talking about goatism and, and mm. theurgy, but then we decide that's that's white and black yeah. magic because yeah. the witcher, the wizards are parodies of scientists. Yes. So it makes sense that they're doing that. So this is applying that to witchcraft. Yeah. Whereas the other one is just the vibe. I've always been thinking as like practical versus theory, whereas the, where, where the wizards are very into right. like the theory and that informs the pra- their practical, whereas the witches just like they know the practical. They don't know why broomsticks stay up, but they know how to use the broomsticks, whereas the wizards are like, draw circles on the ground, keep the broomsticks up. Yeah, but then the other stuff doesn't work unless the circles keep them. I don't know. It's a weird one. Yeah. 
and, and this kind of goes against the like curiosity sort of thing where like Pratchett saying no it's bad to want to know why these things work yeah or is, yeah mocking her definitely or it's not the way the way to understand is through practice rather than research but I think as academicals who I've spent the last <laughs> month researching which is abroad I think again this is another reason why I'm relating to Magra I mean I would probably be drawn to the research witchcraft thing. same yeah <laughs> Whereas the, the Granny Weatherwax view is that it, it simply doesn't matter. Moreover, in the Discworld Companion, Pratchett and Briggs claim that there is no Discworld concept of white and black magic. There is simply magic in whatever form, which may be used in whatever way the user decides. Suggesting there is any type of magic that is intrinsically good or bad would make as much sense to a Discworld wizard as suggesting that there is good and bad gravity. And I think that is a load of crap. I agree. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've got to go out here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have the wizards have specific books locked up in their yeah. dungeons because the magic in them is too dangerous. Yeah. And and there's the idea that, like, Granny Weatherwax has to constantly, like, police herself from mm. becoming bad. And that is about the way she uses it. But there's the idea that, like she said, yeah, you can't use magic to control people in, in Weird Sisters. Yeah. Well, that is saying that magic that is used to control is bad. It's bad, yeah. And we see in this book, the way... Um, she treats Lilith or yeah. thinks of Lilith that she's bad. She's Using mirrors evil, is yeah. bad. Yeah, exactly. Because it's ingenuine, but yep. <laughs> there's this emphasis on authenticity. And this is stated at the start of the novel during the meeting with the other witches where Granny describes McGrath by saying that she's gone funny in the head, wanting to relate to herself. But then she wouldn't listen to Granny's explanation that simplicity garlic was your mother, Aramin... Araminta? Araminta garlic was your granny. Yolande garlic is your aunt. And you're, 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 you're me. I think I added too many yours in, but you get it. And then she sits back with a satisfied look of someone who has just solved everything anyone could ever want to know about identity. So there is some pushback where they're poking fun at granny, that she can't articulate this thing. And I'm sure all those names mean something that I'll have to go through and, and put note in the transcript. But Your next one is identity cogito. Oh yeah, because this, this is, I think, therefore I am. This is... Ah. Yeah. But that's that's meant to be the the founding axiom of Western philosophy. Right? Yep. This is the one provable truth that we can't deny. Therefore, everything follows from that. Whereas Granny's like she's finished there. Yep. She's like I am done. <laughs> Let's I know, not go further I know I than am. that. So yeah. <laughs> um, this conflicts again with McGrath's. She's not allowed to reinvent herself. She is stuck being who she is. Yep. But if who you are is a female dwarf, like Cherry Littlebottom, you're allowed to put on lipstick and express yourself that way. But, and, but yeah, he's making fun of both, though, isn't he? Mm. he yeah, he's he's setting those ideas up, which we now look at and, and I mean, he's about. definitely siding with Granny Weatherwax, yeah, as we've yeah, established. Yeah. But so there is a tension going on. This also obviously ties into the theme of stories. McGrath is trying to reshape herself and her identity by telling stories about herself. I am a karate person. I am this witch. Mm-hmm. I look this way. Um, I ate these things. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Granny's saying you eat what you eat. But again, that sort of says, well, then you don't get the opportunity to change. Yep. Which I don't like. And conflicts with the better Granny in the next book, I think. Okay. Well, Granny really goes on a strange character arc, doesn't she? Yeah. It's I, like she's a completely different character to what we saw um, in the first one. Well, I forgot the maybe, name. I wouldn't say she's a completely different character but there's definitely like when, she's more entrenched in her values when she's teaching esque she's just very much like i am teaching you this and you're silly if you don't listen to me but there's none of this political kind of yeah i mean i was i was gonna save this for next episode part two when we talk about the conservative thing but the the main difference i think is not so much the viewpoint but in equal rights she changes her mind okay and that is the thing where i said i i like granny weatherwax i oh, like yeah, it yeah, yeah, i like I that granny i like that granny is initially resistant to it but then she realizes and goes 
Yeah. No, wait, this is silly. You can be a wizard. Whereas here she's going, no. Pratchett really doubles down. You are you, are you and you are what you are. Yeah. And this is complicated again by, well, Esk is a wizard. Yeah. That's the whole premise of the book. But and, uh, maybe Esk is more authentic because she's a wizard, because she is a wizard, whereas McGrath's not a wizard. She's trying to be something else. Mm. I don't know. Do we know how old McGrath is? Um, I would think she's mid-20s, late-20s. Yeah, okay. Something like that. Just comparing They it. do say she's the youngest one in Weird Sisters. Yeah. So on the L Space Wiki, her age is listed as 30-ish, which seems about right. Yeah. By the end of the series, and I mean the end of the end of the series, she's had a bunch of kids and things that's in the Shepherd's Crown oh, in the last one. Damn. But that's it's like 20 years after this book. So yeah, but sort of mid, mid-20s mid seems about right. I was just thinking, uh, the reason I was wondering, I was comparing her to Esk, who's very sh- assured of herself and just needs to find a way to be herself. Because mm. um, she's young and doesn't have all of those insecurities yet put on her. Whereas McGrath's not sure, so she's just trying everything. Yeah. But you have to try everything. You, you have to work it out, right? <laughs> so yeah, we all like the dildos. McGrath. You can take that out. <laughs> Do you want me to... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry okay. an opening. I'm also going to bring... Alice, you are Maddie on. Another standout character in Witches Aboard is Grebo. And I was really surprised by how much I liked Grebo I coming love Grebo. back to this He's book. He's Puss in Boots. Is he? Yeah. You're getting I think track. that's the joke. Ah, I hadn't put that together. Oh. And I didn't read Puss in Boots, so I'm going to have to go back and read Puss in Boots. Sorry. No, that's fine, because <laughs> we got part two now. Do you, do you have more on that, or just he is Puss in Boots? He's Puss in Boots. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Okay, I'm going to, between this and next episode, I'm going to read... obviously read it and just been like, but if you put a cat in boots, what would that Does actually be? Well, he's, he's in the leather get-up, so I'm assuming there's boots involved. Like, what else are you wearing in fairy tale world? You're not but wearing Oxford, make, like... like a deal of him wearing boots because you think he would, but right? It's like They'd... a cat that's dressed up as like a. No, I think you're totally right. But now I'm thinking, like you know, given the the idea of stories in which is abroad, that there would be a thing where like he needed to find a pair of boots because he knew that cats had to wear boots. I think it's because the... everyone finds. Oh no! Now I'm Im- imposing modern view of puss in boots because everyone now finds puss in boots like really cute. For episode two, we will revisit this. Yeah, I'm going to read all the puss in boots fairy tales and come back because you're right. And if you're not right, then Pratchett fucked up. But yeah. I don't think he did. No. Ah, that's a joke. Huh. I didn't get it. Well, I mean, I was into Puss in Boots when I was a kid because uh-huh. he's a karate cat and I love cats and I love karate. I mean. <laughs> right, now you're my karate again. <laughs> well, I guess Nanny's the cat one. Yeah. But yeah, I was really surprised how much I liked Grebo because I sort of remembered it being a bit of a cheap gag. Uh, like just this like, oh, there's a guy and he's acting like a cat and can, cats are meant to act this way. Yeah, I think this is a really <laughs> good portrayal of, of a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so we like her. You're. I was going to ask you: is is he Byronic? I, I don't think so. You're kidding. No. I know this is your thesis, but we really have to hash out definition of Byronic. I... He is a dangerous, violent, animalistic man in leather who is super maybe hot. in like a postmodernist playing around with the Byronic hero thing. But I didn't. How I didn't. He not I didn't feel it when I was reading it. I wasn't going. Oh, this is a Byronic hero. I was going. This is a cat. <laughs> So, I dressed up as a man and a joke about it. I didn't really feel a, a joke. Without unloading everything, give us like the one or two sentence pitch on what a Byronic hero is. 
Which obviously comes from like being like Lord Byron or like Lord Byron's heroes, but what is the character type if okay. you had to sum it up? Uh, Byron and Kira has some sort of secret past which haunts them in their present. Uh, they often have a bunch of weird relationships with ladies that also haunt them. After Byron, they're characterized as oddly sexy, but in a dangerous way that you shouldn't Right, like. that's Grebo, right? I, uh, yeah, maybe. Oddly sexy in a dangerous way. I didn't I didn't find Grebo sexy. But he's described as he's described he has as the sexy. animal magnetism yeah. that people can't resist. I didn't feel it. I see where you're coming from, yeah. but I didn't feel it. And I don't know that Pratchett was going for it. But oh, he definitely can, was. Like, that's the... Yeah, he is the irresistible... Mm. He has that charm about him when he goes to the ball. When he goes to the ball, maybe. Yeah. Okay, I'm thinking of Not him in he's the, the kitchen. Cat. And he's, kick, he's kicking off the balls off the counter as a fully grown man with leather on. Yeah, like, no, not when he's fighting really under the counter. On. That's when he's being a cat. Okay, when, when he goes, he goes to, to the, the ball, ball, maybe... Um, in, in, I'm going to be pedantic about this. In the post-Byron by Ronakiro way. Yes, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The brooding, when you say the... the then he's the, the brooding. The past and everything, you're getting, like, very technical. Yeah. If you take what is broadly the Byron hero, it's I, Well, then I just say he's meant to be a dark hero. Brooding, he's a sexy, broody dude. Yeah. But, yeah sexy, broody dude. Then, then I go dark hero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is obviously... This is Alice's whole hero. thesis. Yeah. So she's very particular But they're all very connected and... <laughs> So in the intro to the first edition of the Guilty of Literature collection, Butler jokes that someone might attempt a queer reading of Guiro's leather-clad appearance. And uh, Stacey Haynes takes up this challenge in her 2005 article, A Pussy in Black Leather. Did you read this or skim over it? I did send it to you. I, I skimmed over this and I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> it. It seemed a bit misguided and is based on very broad and stereotypical definitions of queerness. I've, I've seen secondary criticism of this article saying, like, yeah, it's, it's a bit misguided. It's the word I'm using. I'll put in the exact quotes in the footnote. But as she points out, he does attend the masquerade dressed like a pirate that had just raided a ship carrying black leather goods for the discerning customer which we were saying it's Byronic but it also just reminded me of Tobias in Arrested Development hmm. have you seen Arrested Development no no um, he becomes a leather daddy okay and then ends up on a um, pirate ship because he thinks he's going to a costume party but he just wears S&M gear and is on a, a boat full of gay pirates so that was um, yeah I had that image um, I just had the image of Puss in Boots at a party <laughs> I can't believe I completely missed <laughs> yeah. the Puss in Boots reference oh when I saw Pussy in Black Leather I was like yeah I'm right yeah <laughs> And, and Haynes admits that he doesn't think there is much deliberate symbolism at work on Pratchett's path. Yeah. But um, says there's a great deal of potential usefulness for engaging queerness through Grebo and images like this. But she is quick to distance herself from Grebo as well, claiming that she has never met anyone who identifies with the character who Pratchett describes as a fat, cunning, evil-smelling multiple rapist. Which is probably for the best, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, almost certainly. But also, that's a Byronic hero, right? A fat, cunning, evil-smelling multiple rapist. Maybe they don't not smell fat. bad. Cunning, uh, evil-smelling multiple rapist. Cunning, evil. They don't always smell bad. You They're definitely Byron rapists. Smells all right. Yeah. In the eighteen twenties. <laughs> yeah. Who was really vain? So he would have been into perfumes and shit. Old but perfumes. Byronic heroes. Yeah, they would have smelled like adventure. Yeah. And sex and uh-huh. other things. So Grubo is one, I think. It's, <laughs> it's complicated. And she says that Grubo is the only recurring character who challenges the restrictions of his own form by contravening his original biological identity. Um, she dismisses Angular, the, the werewolf from The Watch, whose lapine form is a completely natural function of her species, 
But what about the librarian who is turned into an yeah, orangutan, orangutan and decides to stay an orangutan? Right? <sighs> By the way, did I ever talk about Grill when we were discussing that? Because I think that comes from Spencer. Grill? Um, yeah. Okay. So in Spencer, there's a character that acts like Cersei and is turning character uh, other characters into, you know, beasts yeah, yeah. to represent, oh, you lustful beasts, bah, you're now a, a hog or whatever. And there's Grill who gets turned into a boar or something, but when they turn them all back, he doesn't want to be turned back. And the line is, let Grill be Grill and have his hoggish way. Oh, okay. And that's, I meant to say that about the orangutan uh, librarian, but it's, it's relevant well, here again. I mean, we're, we'll come back to that when I get to the wizard's book in, <laughs> in two years as well. So, by the way, when you, when you say Spencer, you mean Edmund, Edmund Spencer's Spencer. fairy queen. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing you do where you just say the name of the author, which Catch I know what up. you mean. But <laughs> you can't keep up. You've got to... Um, Grubo is also a familiar. Yep. He is, uh, Na- yeah, Nanny Ogg's cat, so he's the parody of the familiar. Now, I tried to do some research into familiars, because I'm interested in the animal angle and things, um, but there, there really isn't much, which is kind of weird. Ronald Hutton has a chapter on witches and animals in his book, The Witcher History of Fear, which is which is probably the best place and, and most comprehensive place if you are interested to go and, and sort of read on that. Um, so he says that in England, the term familiar became applied to an evil spirit that had taken animal shape, which is sort of the irony of Grubo there is he's, he's gone the other way. Yep. Um, but he says proper research into familiars didn't really begin until the early 2000s, and there have been no clearly defined schools of thought with steady adherence to have developed from this research, so no one really knows. It's just sort of this mush of animals that are associated for witches in folklore, right? Yep. Because the old lady was lonely and she kept a cat. Right. That's really it. <laughs> um, makes sense. Yep. Uh, nevertheless, Hutton contends that the discussions of its origins has thrown up so many possible ex- explanations. <laughs> she was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> Should have got a dildo or a broomstick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he says there's been so many possible explanations that it's unlikely that any major new primary sources for the early modern English belief in the witch's animal familiar now remain to be discovered. Now, that seems a little bit hub- hubristic. <laughs> I'm on his part that we couldn't possibly know. Have you heard there's a joke? No, you wouldn't. There's a comedian, um, there's a comedian named Matt Kirshen from the UK who has a joke where he is in an aeroplane and the lady next to him is looking at the stuff and goes, Oh, isn't it amazing how the, these planes fly? How do you think they do that? I guess we'll never know. And he was like, Well, you won't. <laughs> Which is sort of the uh, uh, slide at uh, Granny Weatherwax. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, McGrath will know, but Granny yeah. never will. Yeah. Granny will just fly. But yeah, I guess that's Hutton going, yeah, well, I guess there's nothing more to be discovered. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find anything. <laughs> but if anyone was going to find something, it'd probably be him, so fair enough. Mm. Uh, possible sources he identifies include Egyptian magicians, fairy helper spirits, shamans, and the folk motif of the grateful animal. A rescue cat that you yeah, bring it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She was lonely. <laughs> In Britain, he says, though, the trope is mostly drawn from a common stock of late medieval and other European ideas about demons. Yeah. So Pierre Delancre, who shares a name with, with yeah, Lancre, he's yeah. the, the French witch hunter guy, argued <sighs> from a theological basis, like King James's demonology, that such animals had to be shape-shifting devils, since the animals ridden to satanic rites could not be real beasts, as they usually <laughs> flew through the sky. Oh, yeah, I saw a flying cat this morning. <laughs> really? <laughs> 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 the hope in your eyes. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> no, they haven't evolved that far yet. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so impeccable logic there from the uh, 14th century French witch hunter. And the myth that witches sealed packs with their familiars by feeding them their own blood from Ugh. hidden teats uh, became... Hidden? The... Yeah, well, that's like... <laughs> 
that's literally it though. They would have it like under their arms and things because that was because uh, they, they had it. to hide their extra yeah. boobs. So there's anyone with a third nipple is a witch. That's how you can tell if they float or if they um if they have a third nip. However, before that, it was said that they merely made friends with the animals by feeding them bread and milk. <laughs> so really, we circle all the way back. You, you yeah. Where, yeah, you solved it straight away. <laughs> you, you did the granny weather acts. It's like I think I milk, therefore I cat, and therefore. Yeah, so that's Hutton, which is a good article, except he does, everyone does it, and I thought Hutton was better than this, but he does throw in a ways in which witches. <sighs> so that brings us to the witches themselves. Oops. I don't have too much this time on the history of, I mean, I have a lot, The Wizard of Oz and, and uh, Sleeping Beauty that's going to come later. But I did want to note that the, the acknowledgement of the um, broomstick symbolism, when Granny Weatherwax says, it was bad enough McGrath telling me about maypoles and what's behind them, adding wistfully that she used to enjoy looking at, maypole, at a maypole on spring morning. Wait, <laughs> while we're here then, yeah, let's look at said, the other ones. <laughs> said there was a lot more. They talk about someone brings back a fertility idol, which they call a sex object. And there's a lot about that implying it's a dildo. But I think the best bit was um, when Nanny, she goes, words have sex in foreign parts? Yes. Said Nanny, hopefully. The words have sex in foreign parts again. This is a very funny book, right? (laughs) I love. Yeah. We also uh, get a reference to Cersei, when Nanny Og remembers hearing about some old enchantress in history you lived on an island and turned shipwrecked sailors into pigs. And then... And then? Well, you had the quote, which I'd made a note of as well. Oh, and McGrath says, that's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Which yeah. then then it's, is seen by the others as whiny. That's whiny, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just think it's it's interesting that it's McGrath really thinking about, like, witchcraft and the history of witchcraft and doing the thing that Granny doesn't do, you know? Like oh, okay. what we were talking about before. Mm. She's, like, she's thinking she's about it. She's actually evaluating yeah. it. Yeah. She's like, oh, why would, why would we do that, though? And then they're like, but they're men! <laughs> well, then Nanny Og's like, yeah, I just want to trap a hundred sailors on my island. That's yeah. Right. Maybe we're Nanny Og. <laughs> <laughs> you. You are Nanny I think I'm just McGrath. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but this, this book's not so much about witches, per se, as fairy godmothers. In the Discworld Companion, fairy godmothers are officially defined by Pratchett and Briggs as a specialised form of witch with particular responsibility for the life of one individual or a group of individuals. Okay. They're a witch with a charge, I guess. Um, In the folklore of Discworld, Pratchett and Jacqueline Simpson, who's a folklorist, um, also liken them to the Southern European myth of the supernatural woman who bestowed wishes and gifts upon newborn babies, explaining that, although more reverently referred to as ladies from outside or ladies who must not be named... They were a kind of fairy that would arrive on the third night after the birth, and there were always three of them. Hmm. Uh-huh. Hmm. I mean, these are the, the ones we were talking about from the Celtic myths of Macbeth and stuff last episode. Yeah. Um, and they would also bestow gifts upon the child in exchange for bounteous offerings of food, which we get a bit of that in um, this with, with Nanny, right? Yeah. Doesn't she, she demands... Food. food everywhere they go, yeah. yeah. So we already had some engagement with the idea of fairy godmothers in Weird Sisters, when the witches pose as uh, John Tom's fairy grandmothers, which notably is at Magrat's suggestion. Huh. I mean, she's the one who becomes the yeah. godmother here. Yeah, the, the original fairy godmother in Witches Abroad is Desiderata Hollow, and we talked about her naming a bit last episode. As Leo Brebart notes in the annotated Pratchett, Desiderata literally translated means things missing and felt to be needed. So it's sort of wishing. Mm-hmm. So Desiderata Hollow is hollow wishes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this again, I think this lends some weight to my thing where I'm trying to work out what um what was her name in, uh, in the last book, the Tariff Lady. Alice. Alice de Marriage? 
Yeah. The idea that, like, her name has to mean something. Mm. So that's still the best theory I've got. But, yeah, just pointing out that Pratchett is naming these witches. He's connotating their names. Connoting? Connotating? Connoting. Connoting. So in her article, Trapped, Fairy Tale in Pratchett and Lackey, in the 2015 Gender Forum Specially True on Pratchett's works, Audrey Taylor compares Witches Abroad with Mercedes Lackey's 2004 novel The Fairy Godmother, which is a reinterpretation of Cinderella, where the Cinderella analogue becomes the apprentice to her fairy godmother and has to make a douchebag prince into a decent person. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so have you ever heard of this book, The Fairy Godmother? No. I mean, Uh, I don't really do a lot of postmodern fairy tales. No. No, neither did I until I, the last month. Yeah, you could teach the fairy tale, you know. I the could teach the fairy tale, you Yeah, unit you're now. ready. Yeah, but I'm too qualified, so they won't employ me. Mm. Um, that's a real thing. I know. Um, but yeah, there's a thing in the book called The Tradition, which forces people to act as they would in fairy tales and stories, which becomes harder to break in time as it's repeated. Right. So yeah, this is this is Witches Abroad, right? Yeah. Ta- Taylor doesn't really argue anything. <laughs> In this article. <laughs> She's like, they're the same. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I don't want to have a go at her, but I I didn't really... Yeah, there didn't seem to be a through line other than that both of them use parody to subvert fairy tale. And it's like, again, that that's the first line of the essay, not the end. Yeah. That's sort of a given. Yeah. She's doing the, the goody weatherwax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, where, where does this idea of the fairy godmother come from? And where do they come from, Josh? <laughs> Thanks, Alice. <laughs> I'll just, so I'll just alley-oop that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I was actually pretty surprised that fairy godmothers don't actually appear in Grimm's fairy tales. I found that surprising. Sort of your go-to. Yeah. I mean, there might be one somewhere now. I want to double check that. It's okay. Well, if, if they do appear, they're not prominent. They come instead from the 17th century French fairy tales of Madame Dolnoy and Charles Perrault. Yeah. Which is a name I've heard of because he's had Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Dolnoy is the originator of the term fairy tales. So cool. no one really knows who she is, because that's rather a significant contribution to She's society. That's why. Okay. Donoy is the originator of the term fairy tales, and our fairy godmothers are featured in her stories The Bluebird, The White Doe, The Beauty with the Golden Hair, so obviously that's a precursor to Goldilocks, yeah, and Finit Sendon, or Cunning Cinders. This is a Cinderella-esque story. There's a velvet slipper and a magical chest of clothes. That'll do it, yep. Yeah. This is where some of these ideas are coming from. But Marina Warner argues in her 1994 book, The Beast and the Blonde. <laughs> not a pawn. Is that not a <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, the Beast and the Blonde. Uh, that fairy tale writers often figured themselves in the tales they wrote as their fairy godmothers. Right. Which kind of makes sense, right? If the fairy godmother is meant to be the guide. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. Just thought it was an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also an, another interesting connection to The Lord of the Rings, where you have the, the golem character who shows mm-hmm. up and they whack him on the head with the oar. Now, this is the... I need a word for this. we we got, we got to come up with a word for the Like, what is the quote from a book that every... Or the scene that every single article talks about? Mm-hmm. But if it's an article... Like, we had the granny defining which and which the magic vehicle writes... The when shall we three meet again line mm-hmm. from Weird Sisters. Every article that talks about which is abroad, I mean, they talk about the store or shape of stories cascading down the mountain, but they talk about the golem scene for no reason. Huh. None of them say anything about it, right? They're just like, yeah, and then there's a reference to Gollum as well, fairy tales and Lord of the Rings. But they always like go on at length about the Gollum scene without making a point about it. And when I was reading it, I just skipped over them and yeah, Gollum, okay. But I found a uh, 1997 master's thesis on the use of formulas in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, which is by <laughs> Nut R. Nutson, who is not His a Discworld character. Hated him. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
yeah, so not uh, Nutsum, who actually makes a point about this that I thought was really insightful, and I didn't see this anywhere else. He says that the depiction of the Godmother's magic wand in Magrat's final disposal of it in the swamp is reminiscent of the destruction of Sauron's ruling ring in the last book of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I thought of that when I saw it, when, when, when I saw it, when I read her chocolate, I'm like, oh, it's like Frodo. <laughs> <laughs> So Nutson acknowledges that the, the parallels, they're sort of eight, right? Throwing a wand in a swamp and throwing a ring in a volcano. But what makes it a probable comparison, and probably an intended one, is the use of Gollum earlier. Yeah, okay. And this is brilliant. It's a good argument. Yeah. yeah. Everyone else points to the Gollum cameo without making anything of it. They're just like, Whereas you know um, Nutson observes that the use of this reference, the reference to Gollum, reinforces the theme about the corrupting influence of power by linking the comparatively weak wand with an instrument of much greater power that poses a much greater threat. So actually talking about how Gollum functions in the story, and then when Nanny bonks him on the head, that's not just a rejection of fantasy. Yeah. Because I don't think that's what Pratchett's doing. Pratchett loves fantasy. He's playing around in it. It's a rejection of the lust for power. Like yeah. Gollum is the corrupted dude. She goes, bam! <laughs> Done. Yeah. So it was really annoying me reading all these people talking about Gollum for no reason. And I was like, Nutsen, you've done it! <laughs> So, of course, uh, as with all of Pratchett's witches' novels, what Witches' Abroad is really about is the power of stories! This is not the power of love, Jesus. It's not the new Mortal Kombat movie, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Or the new Ishiguro book. (laughs) So, in Witches' Abroad, and this is the other bit that uh, everyone says in their articles, Pratchett explains that stories' very existence overlays a faint but insistent pattern on the chaos that is history. Stories etch grooves deep enough for people to follow in the same way that water follows certain paths down a mountainside. It's it's a pretty good metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. (laughs) Is it metaphor there? And this uh, contrasts with the villain of the book, Granny Weatherwax's sister Lilith, uh, who we'll talk more in depth about in part two who tries to force the actual world into the patterns that are so neatly drawn in fiction, which is treated as a violation of the natural order, right? Mm. Except Discord runs on Narrativium. Yeah. So I'm not sure what's going on here. So yeah, it's not properly defined until the first Science of Discord novel, which comes in 1999, but oh, it's still present, right? Um, you've got stuff like in the early books, them turning the... Um, so that they'll win because one in a hundred chances work nine times out of ten, or whatever the joke is. And then the whole premise of Discworld is that it runs on story logic. Yes. So Lilith Except is not that he defying like it in this. Well, Lilith is not defying the natural order. She is reinforcing the natural order. What are you doing there, Pratchett? <laughs> and we, yeah, we get a bit of this um, in the next novel as well in uh, Lords and Ladies, where there's like conflicts between folklore and, and belief and stuff that does seem out of step with the broad idea of yeah, the narrative causality of Discworld itself. What's he doing? Oh, well, he's using them to subvert it and poke at him, but yeah, I, I don't know. The, the... He's like a mad scientist sometimes. He's just like tapping away at his keyboard. So yeah, may, maybe we'll get into that a mm. bit more okay. um, in part two when we, when we really go in on um, Lilith. But the particular stories that he is setting his sights on in Witches Abroad are fairy tales. And we're going to examine some of those now. Yeah. So yeah, I think the way we're dividing the episodes up, as I said at the top, is... This is everything on the way to January, and then next episode is January and everything after. Cool. My favorite Canon Crows record. How was Chuck? So here we're going to talk about the fairy tales that they run into on on the road to January. So that is Sleeping Beauty, Red Riding Hood, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Um, there's also mentions of stuff like Rumpelstiltskin and um, yeah. Goldilocks and things. 
So we're going to talk about them and then the genuine fairy tales that we're genuine, huh? Mm. Oh, I just got that. That's deliberate, isn't it? Could be. Yeah, no, it is. Because it's all about breaking the mirrors yeah, and then, oh, gen- we fixed it. Uh, <laughs> um, that's called an epiphany. Genuine Puss fairy boots, tales. Genuine. Um, <laughs> the, the fairy tales in the second part that we're talking about are things like Cinderella. I mean, that's the big one. Snow White, The Frog Prince, which I actually have a crazy amount to say about. Given it's that the it's best. a throwaway line in um, the book. And there's another one in there as well. He's undermining these these fairy tales through parody, like we said he was doing with Shakespeare and Witches Abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's particularly taking aim at the lessons that these fairy tales are imparting and, and the ways they're suggesting that people should behave. Mm-hmm. So Jack Zipes, who's your guru of fairy tale studies and is, specializes in fairy tale revisions and postmodernism, sort of this 80s, 90s era, he says... Almost all critics agree that educated writers of literary fairy tales purposely appropriated the oral folktale and converted it into a type of literary discourse about mores, values, and manners so that children would become civilized according to the social code of that time. So yeah, that's just saying that fairy tales are, as much as they're being repeated, they're also being rewritten. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting what morals are carried through and how, the, how those morals adapt, which we'll look at a bit more. And as the postmodern fairy tale scholar Kevin Paul Smith explains... This often required an ideological adaption on behalf of the literary transcribers, from concerns of the rural peasantry from whom the tales come, to those of the bourgeois parents anxious to raise moral children. Yeah, so he cites Diane Perkins' example of how the witch's house in Hansel and Gretel was originally made from bread rather than gingerbread, as we discussed in the last episode, and how the tale therefore shifted from being about rural anxiety, about famine, to middle-class concerns about greediness for children, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's no longer about don't feed your kids because you won't have enough to eat. It's now don't feed your kids because they'll get fat and be little shits. Mm-hmm. And Smith conducts a particular examination of witches abroad in his chapter on Terry Pratchett's fairy tale inversions in his two. 2007 book, The Postmodern Fairy Tale. Mm. He notes that Pratchett's use of fairy tale is similar to that of feminist revisers in that his revisions highlight the patriarchal assumptions underlying the classical fairy tale and change the stories in order to make them more equitable, with witches abroad specifically showing how. Oh, hey, Goose. Um, specifically showing how the fairy tale can be a negative force used to make people conform to societal rules. We yeah. would agree with that, yeah? We would, and this is what he's talking about with the feminist revisers. This was a, a trend. In mm-hmm. the late 70s, 80s. Revising fairy tales for feminists. Yeah, I mean, the big example of that is uh, Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll talk about more next episode with Bluebeard. That's the other fairy tale that uh, we're yes. going to talk about next episode. Yeah, there's lots of examples of these throughout the 80s, and he's saying that Pratchett sort of follows in that tradition. And he identifies eight ways fairy tales operate intertextually within mass-produced fiction, suggesting that Pratchett's use of fairy tales in Witches Abroad is primarily an example of Element 5, Revision. This is very Bloomian, because Revision is one, really, of Bloom's weird Greek terms. Yeah, the categories he divides them up into are authorised. So this is explicit references to a fairy tale in the title when you say, hey, this is Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Riderly, which is an implicit reference, but that's something where it's a... Like, like, like the, bloody, the Bloody Chamber okay. is an example yeah. of that, where it's not saying this is Bluebeard, but mm-hmm. it's telling you it's Bluebeard through all its references. Uh, incorporation, which is when a story has a fairy tale within it. Mm-hmm. You also have Illusion, which is just alluding mm-hmm. to a fairy tale. Margaret Atwood does that a lot. Mm. So yeah, then you got Revision, which is what he's talking about with Witches Abroad and the Feminist Revisions, which is taking a tale and, and rewriting it. Mm-hmm. Fabulation, which is crafting an original fairy tale. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess still playing around with those tropes and things. He does give examples of all these. I did not write them down. There's metafictional discussions of fairy tales is category seven. And the last uh, category is an architectural or chronotopic fairy tale setting. So it might not be a fairy so tale So you take story. Oz or whatever. Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it in a fairy tale land. So, I mean, obviously Pratchett's using a blend of all of these. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think revision has like four different subsections. Yeah. <laughs> That he talks about. And yeah, so he says primarily, like he uses all these, but primarily Pratchett is revising fairy tales, rewriting them to, you know. Modern standards. To modern standards and and different ideas. And also metafiction, which is where you, you know, have the witches literally commenting on this is a fairy tale, this is how stories work. Yep. To clarify that a bit, Smith defines revision as any new version of a fairy tale, whether it's a Disney adaptation or a postmodern rewriting. And he appeals to Zipes' definition, um, who he, he refers to the almighty OED, <laughs> uh, which defines revision as looking at something carefully over with a view to improving or correcting it, to re-examine in order to approve or amend, which mm-hmm. seems we know what yeah, that means. Yeah, very Bloomian. His literary theory of influence, yeah. So that's a pretty, you know, standard definition of um, revising, but there's an emphasis on correcting there. And Zipes adds that, as a result of transformed values, the revised classical fairy tale seeks to alter the reader's view of traditional patterns, images, and codes. This does not mean that all revised classical fairy tales are improvements or progressive. Mm. However, the premise of a revision is that there is something wrong with the original work that needs changing for the better, right? Why revise it if the original's still good? Yep. To make money. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's revision. As for metafiction, uh, Smith defines metafictional intertextuality as any instance when a fairy tale is commented upon or when the fairy tale is analysed in a critical way within a text. That's metafictional, yeah. But it's metafictional. <laughs> um, I, I think that Pratchett also uses prominent elements of element three, incorporation. Mm-hmm. So that's when the fairy tale is explicitly referred to in a text. I mean, I guess he doesn't say this is Sleeping Beauty, but... He may as well. They're illusions, yeah. but the story, the fairy tale themselves are in the book. It's not mm-hmm. just referencing, oh, this is like Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty happens within Weird Sisters. Right. And I think it applies because Witches Abroad is its own story rather than a revised fairy tale itself. Yep. So this is also, yeah, this is also fabulation, right? Crafting your own fairy tale. Witches Abroad itself is a moralizing fairy tale. Yep. Yeah. 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 That's good. There's also, and perhaps most pressingly, the pattern recognition subset of revision. Right. Um, which is where the allusion is not so much to the content of fairy tales, but their narrative um. structure. So this is stuff like in Shrek, where you have Once Upon a Time and They Lived Happily Ever After, which Witches Abroad doesn't do so much, mostly because it runs in the opposite direction. Yeah. I mean, this is what Witches Abroad is grappling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll revisit that element a bit more in the next episode, I think. And Smith does say that revision incorporates structural similarities as well. So it's not like he's overlooking these things, but I mm-hmm. wanted to emphasize them a bit. So with this in mind, let's turn to some of the fairy tales Pratchett metafictionally revises in Witches Abroad. Um, so the primary source for the fairy tales, and perhaps the most famous and influential fairy tale authors, are the Brothers Grimm, who collected and edited versions of German fairy tales for children. But yeah, they were doing this from 1812 to 1857. Byron Age. Yeah. As with Well, Will, Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I still don't know how to say that. It's just Will, but if I just say Will, you don't I think know it's what I'm well, saying. Well. Then it's meant, yeah. So, as with Well, there is a Discworld analogue for the Brothers Grimm. Thankfully, not an anachronistic one this time, um, mm-hmm. in the form of the Sisters Grimm, one M. <laughs> Which is more fun. Yeah, uh, who are Agonizer and Eviscera. Mm-hmm. So, Agonizer Grimm and Eviscera Grimm, <laughs> who wrote real fairy tales with lots of blood and bones and bats and rats in them. That's mm-hmm. from The Amazing Maurice. One of the main characters in The Amazing Maurice is the great niece of the Sisters Grimm, mm-hmm. which we'll get to in about four years. 
And a copy of their Grim Fairy Tales is also central to the plot of Thief of Time. Mm-hmm. And both Amazing Maurice and Thief of Time come out in 2001. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously got these fairy tales again on the brain. Interesting. Um, it's kind of ironic that, yeah, they're emphasised as the, you know, the real fairy tales with lots of bloods and bones of bats and rats. The Grimm's fairy tales are very tame and are actually the cleaned up versions of the Of old the originals, things. yeah. Yeah, they have the reputation for being darker the- than the Disney versions. But they themselves are a cleaned up version. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas Daphne Antonia Lawless, whose thesis we discussed in the Weird Sisters episode um, on Weird Sisters and Wild Women, uh, she observes that the Grimm's collections contain several tales featuring witches as primary antagonists. And their tales, she says, construct a witch character made up of various wicked female archetypes, such as the wicked stepmother, the woodland hag, and the diabolical temptress who offers forbidden knowledge. Which is often sexual. Maples. Loris <laughs> <laughs> also argues that the transition of the fairy tale witch from rural auntie mother, as we discussed last episode, to wicked stepmother was part of this um, effort to conform to the needs of the 19th century urban bourgeoisie, right? Right. Um, however, she also claims that the high rates of death and childbirth for early modern rural women and the usual quick remarriage of their widowers meant that the presence of the stepmother in the rural home was more of an exception. That's so she's making an argument depressing. That, yeah. Well, stepmothers are a common feature because it was so. Yeah. But then she's also saying the stepmother was an update once it moved um, out of the rural thing. So there seems to be a contradiction there. I'm not sure which one it is. Okay. Interestingly, as Marina Tata notes in her 1987 book, The Hard Facts of the Grimm's Fairy Tales. Do you want to do anything with that? The Hard Facts? No? No, I'll leave that alone. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Tata notes that in contrast to the corruption of language associated with Shakespeare's Weird Sisters, the Grimm's witches almost never cast verbal spells or conjurations. So they're not doing this language thing that we were talking about in Macbeth. They're just mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lawless also points out Ruth B. Boddingheimer, mm. um, her 1987 analysis of the moral and social vision of the Grimm's tales wherein she observes that the Grimm's good women overwhelmingly refrain from speech and only speak in response to male characters. So it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. No, sure, (laughs) they sure do not. I mean, that's some pretty thorough analyses going on there. She also identifies answered as the verb most commonly applied to the speech of good female characters. Yeah, how do you like that? I, I don't, Josh. Well, I don't like the content, but this this is the kind of scholarship where I'm like, oh, that's, good one. That's good scholarship. You yeah. went through and counted all the answers. Nice. Yeah, nice. Control F, and this is baby. In 19, no, this is 1987. Oh, she, even, she really counted. Yeah, you can't even get a... Um, Go you, bottom chimer. Bottom chimer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Sedos spoke is reserved to witches and other wicked women. Oh. So I don't know if, how deliberate that is. I imagine that's like an implicit sort of yeah. subliminal So thing. there's this idea that if a woman is assertive, she's evil and you must cut out her tongue yeah. and burn her. Yeah, so Law says this just goes to show how the Grimm's editing took more and more speech out of the mouths of good women and put it in the mouths of evil ones. <laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the only thing they took out of their mouths. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, the fairy tales Pratchett plays with his witches abroad don't actually feature that many witches. Yeah. And he doesn't really focus on the witches in the ones that do. He's focusing on the moral implications of the the stories. And the witches' response to them. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than the specific. Specific. 
rather than the specific portrayal which is like he did in Weird Sisters. Mm-hmm. So the first story they run into on the way to Genua is one that includes a witch, and it's one that I have a lot to say about, and that's Sleeping Beauty, uh, which Pratchett already did in Weird Sisters. It was one of my favourite parts, right? They're putting the kingdom to sleep. Mm-hmm. And that actually engaged with the witches there. Here, it's about the implications of Sleeping Beauty herself and the female readers that she represents. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I want to talk about uh, in Sleeping Beauty is the power of true love. <laughs> it just leaves an awful taste in my mouth. You're not into true love? I think it's nice. I make a fun joke here, but I won't. <laughs> mm. uh, I'll elaborate on this. Yeah, you, you go forth. Okay. Yeah, Granny Weatherwax criticizes the story, saying, Cutting your way through a bit of bramble is how you can tell he's going to be a good husband, is it? Yeah, no. Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, like a good woodcutter. It's so mad. I mean, I was telling you I had to go to the physio because I started splitting wood again, so I'm... I'm <laughs> Not made the card. I'm out. Doomed to bachelorhood. <laughs> You're in a long-term relationship for the listeners. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sorry. I'm not available. <laughs> we had so many requests that I thought I should, yeah, you know, specify. It's understandable. No one signed up to the Patreon, but they have signed up to my OnlyFans. Your OnlyFans. Yeah. I was going there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've established that yep. being able to hack your way through shit isn't good. Well, have we? Because. Yes. <laughs> She's right. Go on. (laughs) Well, Smith reflects Granny Weatherwax's concerns, wondering if Sleeping Beauty's rescuer will resemble the genteel prince who wakes the heroine with a kiss in the grooms, or will it be the prince who rapes the Sleeping Beauty while she is still comatose in the older, bawdier version of the tale? Neither of those is good. What? Neither of those is good. No. Just to finish that sentence. The older, bawdier version of the tale, Sol Luna Italia in Basile's Pentamorini? Nice. Pentamorini? No, I don't think I said that correctly at all. Fine, you're not French. I'm pretty sure it doesn't rhyme with macaroni, but here we are. (laughs) This brings us to the first of two podcasts I listened to in preparation for this. The other one was the uh, Disney Princess Death Battle, which which we we, discussed last time. I cut that out. That was like 20 minutes of us being like, is Nala a princess? (laughs) Um... But that was the Disney Story Origins podcast, which is hosted by a guy named Paul J. Hale, who compares Disney adaptations of fairy tales to their source material. He sounds fun. Um, it's a pretty good podcast. I don't love his sense of humor, but um, yeah, it's very thorough. It's it's sort of surface level, but he, he does a good job. Um, but in the Sleeping Beauty episode, Hale argues that Sleeping Beauty does actually represent true love. Mm. His argument is based on Perot's uh, version from 1697, which is called The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, not the, the rapey okay. um, macaroni one. There, the princess is not woken by a kiss, mm. um, but she awakes naturally just because the curse has ended. Okay. So the prince doesn't actually wake her yep. up. Yep. So he doesn't touch her at all. Mm. Um, My favorite so far. Yeah. And it, that coincides with the prince coming to rescue her, but she's already awake when he gets there, and then they... Um, Fall in love. Well, okay, so I'll read the... I've got the oh, whole paragraph uh, Alice here. Reed, shall I read? Says Alice Reed. Does it? Yeah. Yeah, do you want to read this big paragraph? Since the end of the enchantment had come, the princess woke up, and gazing at him with greater tenderness in her eyes than might have seemed proper at a first meeting, she said, Is that you, my prince? What a long time you have kept me waiting. Delighted at these words, and still more by the tone in which she said them, the prince did not know how to express his gratitude and joy, but he told her that he had loved her more than himself. Oh, that's nice. Although what he said was badly expressed, it pleased her all the more. The greatest love is the least eloquent. Of the two of them, she was the less tongue-tied, which is not surprising since she had had the time to think of what she would say. They spent four hours talking to each other and still had not said the half of what they wanted. That I will allow. Right. So they do a little meet cute. Yeah. They don't even kiss. Yeah, They good. just, like, hang out and meet each other and are like, oh, I love you. better, yeah. 
So this is the guy's argument. Right. You're like, no, it's like, no, actually, if you read it. Okay. Yeah. This, this I'll go with. Mm. Um, after this, they also have supper together in a hall lined with mirrors. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just bring that up because um, of uh, Lilith's penchant for reflective surfaces, mm. which we'll get to uh, in part two. Perot, who attaches explicit moral explanations to all of his tales, says that the moral of Sleeping Beauty is for girls to wait a while so that they may wed a loving husband, handsome, rich, and kind, and that lovers lose nothing if they wait and tie the knot of marriage late. Yep. But also, why do girls have to wait a while? Why can't why can't it be girls and guys? Yes. This is uh, this mm. is the standards of the, the time, right? Mm. Their patriarchal positions. Yep. And of course, here, marriage is code for sex. Yeah. At the same time, Perot says another moral is to stay in bed, adding 100 years asleep. You'll never find such patience in a girl today. See, I read that in the notes and just... Mm. Like, he, that's some slut shaming, right? Oh, yeah. You can read the, in the first one where it's like, oh, you know, wait for your true love and, and everything. But yeah, this is just girls these shaming. days. Yeah, mm. God. Uh, Zipes also says of Perot's Sleeping Beauty that the unnamed princess being endowed with beauty, the temper of an angel, grace, the ability to dance perfectly, the voice of a nightingale, and musicality by her fairy godmothers, is bred to become the ideal aristocratic lady. She is expected to be passive and patient for a hundred years until a prince rescues and resuscitates her, with her docility and self-abandonment being rewarded in the end when the prince returns to set things right. So even though he's not kissing her or whatever, or taking her, she's not... Yeah, she's waiting for the prince. This is the answered thing. She doesn't get to be... Her own... An active player. Yeah, no agency. And this actually brings back in the uh, Disney Princess Deathmatch thing where when they ranked all the princesses, uh, Sleeping Beauty was dead last mm. because she literally does nothing for the entire movie. <laughs> so. Which honestly goals, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's true. She's well, real famous. It's like named after her. Well, yes. So we could say she won in a way. Anyway, sorry. Oh, the other thing... Well, while we talk about the name, I did mention before that the Grimm's fairy tale version um, is called Briar Rose. Mm-hmm. And that's the name. She pricks her finger on the road. But th- there's that. Um, it's also just her name is Briar Rose. Oh. She's not Aurora. That's brought in. in um, but also, is it because the castle is covered by Briar? Mm-hmm. So Briar rose ah. over the castle. I mean, and these are folk tales that are transmuted orally, where things are used mm-hmm. as um, mnemonic devices. Mm-hmm. So, like, there in just the name of the story, you have, okay, what's my character's name? What happens to her? And yeah. then what happens all in all in mm-hmm. one? Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, so that's true love. Uh, more pertinently to uh, Witches Abroad is the portrayal of witches. And Hale also has an interesting theory about the witch in Sleeping Beauty as well. He speculates that Maleficent, as she's called in the Disney version, might be a Cambian. Now, do you know what a Cambian is, no. Alice? Okay. Don't use that tone with me. <laughs> Go on. Well, I was, this is one of those things where I was getting ready for you to be like, uh, not only do I know what a Cambian Absolutely is, not. I wrote the book on Cambian, <laughs> and, and if I wanted a Cambian, a I could get one, because I'm what? Sickening. <laughs> What's a Cambian? <laughs> so, well, the example Hale gives is Caliban from The Tempest, from yeah, Shakespeare's Tempest. What is it? A Cambian is a half-human, half-devil hybrid. Ooh. Right? How did I not know that? Exactly. That's why I was getting ready for you to sass me. Mm. <laughs> I got sassed. <laughs> yeah, you did. Shangela style. <laughs> and the example Hale gives is Caliban from Shakespeare's Tempest. Yep. Who is the son of the African witch Sycorax. Uh, yeah. So we also got the fear of racial miscegenation going on here. Sort of in relation to the orcs and, and, <gasps> and things and unseen academicals. Another famous uh, Cambian is the archetypal wizard Merlin. True. From the Arthurian legends, who we talked a bit about on the Equal Rights podcast, but some older versions even cast him as the Antichrist. That makes me happy to know. Right. Yeah, good. Um, including the anonymous 14th century French romance, the uh, Perciforest, which contains the earliest known version of the Sleeping Beauty tale. Huh. So there you go. Yeah. 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 This is all stuff uh, Hale 
digs up on his podcast, so this isn't original stuff here. But yeah, we'll talk a bit more about Sleeping Beauty's origins in a second, but to finish up on Cambians, um, their creation is detailed in the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, who argues that demons cannot reproduce because they lack souls, and only God, and this is the elves and the orcs thing again, and only God has the power of creation, with humans and animals being given permission, and because they are metaphysical and can't interact with humans or the physical world... They can't exist, but the Bible says they exist, so therefore they do exist. So he spends uh, a lot of pages that I read all of trying job. to um, logically justify the existence of demons and cambians. And the best he comes up with is that demons can't get pregnant or reproduce, but they can turn into uh, incubuses, mm-hmm. succubuses, which is the female one. Yep. Succubuses. Succubuses. Succubuses and have sex with men and take their sperm and then oh, they can't reproduce but they can corrupt the sperm while it's inside them again this is the creation versus corruption thing (laughs) and then they turn into incubuses and have sex with a lady to impregnate her with the demon sperm it's a lot of work it seems like they are just reproducing right (laughs) um also to bring it back to pratchett i was looking through some of his short fiction he has a tale called uh fuck i can't remember what it's called it's like incubust or something (laughs) and it's about an incubus that has um premature ejaculation Protect this man. <laughs> yeah, so the incubus showed up and is like, and the lady's like, well, are we getting ready? He's like, sorry, this never happens. <laughs> it's like a one page story. <laughs> uh, finishes prematurely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> incubus is incubi. Um, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, although they can't reproduce themselves, they, they transfer it to the women, you know, did all that. And okay. that, that's where we get changelings and cambians from, yep. right? According to the Malleus Mulificarum. Um, yeah, I went read through all of this and was going to go into more detail, but it, it was too much. I pulled the record hard. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Now, this is somewhat irrelevant since the music in the Disney version all comes from the Tchaikovsky Ballet from 1889, where the witch is an evil fairy named Caribous, whose name is taken from a similar character in Dolnoy's tale, The Princess Mary Blossom. Mm-hmm. So he gets rid of this sort of devil image. But the Disney version that most people are familiar with these days, I mean, uh, the Disney versions are the sort of canonical modern ones, right? Mm-hmm. Mostly derives from Perot's telling. Mm. And in the Disney film, Maleficent is described explicitly as a wicked witch. Right. Although, as I'm discovering mm. from reading all this stuff, witch is not so much your, your body, your granny weatherwax, your me. Witch is an occupation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, a fairy can be a witch, a cambion can be a witch, yeah. a witch is a magic user. So it's not like there is a race of witches. Yeah. So she's still a fairy because part two of Maleficent that I watched and then turned off, they do describe her as a powerful fae. So she's a fairy canonically in Disney. Mm. Um, But in the Grimm's version, the spell is cast by a wise woman who wanted to get revenge for not having been invited to Sleeping Beauty's birthday party. Come again? I mean, this happens in the Disney version. They they invite all the... Oh, that's right. So this happens in all the versions, but there's never... She's a petty bitch. Well, in Perot's version, all the fairies in the country are invited to be godmothers for the little princess, mm. and it says, except for an aged fairy who had not been invited, because for more than 50 years she had never left the tower she lived in so that she was believed to be dead. So this is mature women being discriminated against by society for, uh, I mean, forever. It's the, it's the Red Riding Hood yeah. thing, which is a broad right. But it's also, that is a justification. We haven't seen this lady in 100 years. She's probably dead. We don't need to invite her. Whereas in all the other versions, they just don't invite her, which sort of does give you the, the <laughs> yeah. Maleficent flip around where it's like, yeah, I'd be pissed too. <laughs> like every other fairy. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's not really clear, you know, exactly what the the witches are in these fairy tales, and it changes around all the time. But as Smith observes of Pratchett's conflation of witches and fairy godmothers in Witches Abroad, because again, Maleficent is a fairy godmother, she's a witch, she's a fairy and a fairy godmother, Mm -hmm. this allows the reader to see how, whichever way one looks at it, the malevolent presence in these fairy tales is always an old woman. Whether whether they're a fairy, a a witch, or it doesn't matter what they are, they're always an old lady, so, Hmm. yes. Uh, Yeah, so I said I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I thought this would be of particular interest to you, plus it's just fucking cool. So, as we said, the earliest known version of the story comes from the uh, Persa Forest, Mm -hmm. which was composed between 1330 and 1344. God, that's old. And it was first published in Giabiasta Bastille's 1634 collection, The Pentamerone. That's the macaroni one, and then popularized by Perot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a French fairy tale, which the Grimm's usually would have omitted from their collection of German tales, right? So their justification for including a version of Sleeping Beauty in the Grimm's fairy tales is a loose connection to the Norse Germanic legend of Brunhilde, who appears in the 13th century Germanic epic poem Nibelgallenhide and the late Icelandic Volsunga saga. Fun! Yeah. Um, so Brunhilde, do you know Brunhilde? No, because you've redacted the plot. I have, but that's what, because I... I don't know. Uh, so... Uh, well, Brunhilde is a Valkyrie who is awakened by the hero Sigurd after he slays a dragon and rides to the top of a mountain where he finds a sleeping Brunhilde surrounded by a tower of shields that are lit on fire. Um, That's and rad. she's chained down. She's got armor on, but the armor is like a prison here. Cuts the armor off her. That's right. used with her skin. So he cuts the armor away from her skin and frees her. Which is like way cooler than a kiss. Yeah, that's nice. Right, and this is this is a curse that's been put upon her by Odin after she refused to marry. Oh, I'm not sure if it's marry Odin. I think it's just marry in general. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So she's you know she's a strong independent woman. I like her. Um, there's no real romance. Um, Sigurd leaves her and then brings his friend uh, King Gunnar or Gunther to marry her. He's so rather than being like I've rescued a prince, he's like I'm just climbing up this mountain, found this sick tower shield, fought my way through, cut all this armor away. It was a hot chick. I'm like I've got my bro. He's the king. I go get him. You guys, yeah. Mm. So he comes back, um, and she's still living on the mountain, surrounded by the wall of flame, and says she will only marry the man who can ride through the flame. And Gunnar, he <laughs> can all the men just burst on fire? That's actually a very good plan. Yeah. I like her. I mean, that's how I met She's Maddie, thinking. Right? <laughs> you rode through the fire. Well, I was thinking, I'm sitting there going, come on. <laughs> through the flame. Bring a fire. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and, and Gunnar, King Gunnar, he can't do it. So Sigurd shapeshifts into him and he's able to do it as, as Gunnar and he marries her. That seems like trickery. Well, it is, but he doesn't uh, consummate the, the, the marriage. Ironically, given the phallic imagery, he puts a sword in between them so they can't have sex. I've heard of that. Right. Yeah. Um, and then he switches places back. So now it's the real uh, Gunnar. And then later they reveal the ruse and she's like, hey, that's Doddy. So now be- you guys have got to fight. So I know which one of you is the best actually who I should be with. She's like, kill each other, kill each other, yeah. kill each other. Well, so Gunnar wins the fight, despite yeah. Sigurd being the hero guy the whole time. Gunnar wins the fight. But Brunhilde is ashamed that she married the lesser hero. Um, so she kills herself. Aww. And um, her body and cigars are burnt together. And I maybe they... That started off so um, cool and ended up so bad. I mean, it's a tragedy, right? Yeah. But yeah. she had female agency and then it was gone. But I like the idea that she killed herself rather than marry a piss-weak king and go to be I a Valkyrie in heaven with a real hero is a better ending than If you know going. that you're going to heaven and be a Valkyrie in heaven, yeah, all right. Well, no, I'm, she did. I'm she jumping on the pile. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going but, now. <laughs> or either rather than um, having to marry... 
a dickhead. The happy ending, you know, or she married the king. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what I'm wondering here, is there, is there a connection to Britomore? Mm, no, not really. Sorry. No, not really? Yeah. Just like that. Okay. What's what's the thing? The Weikermacht. Weikermacht tradition? Yeah, yeah. Um, if that is like, mm, no. No, not really. I wish, yeah, no. I mean, there's obviously something going on with Valkyries and things, but yeah. no, nothing specific. Okay. To refresh the listeners, Britomore was the Britomore. is the cool protagonist in book three of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Yeah, she's she's the warrior lady who rides around and hits people with a stick. Oh, right? I love her. Yeah, yeah, and her stick is meant to represent the fact that like she's got a dick, uh-huh. <laughs> like, and that and that's her masculine energy that she has. She dongs people. Uh, yeah, dongs. <laughs> <laughs> I picked it for a reason. <laughs> oh yeah, just just another cool thing is that um, in prose version, the good fairy who puts her to sleep to save her life after she pricks her finger on thing. I'm assuming people are familiar with the story of Sleeping Beauty, but she is given the news instantly that Briar Rose has, has pricked herself and fallen asleep by a dwarf with seven league boots. Um, and, and she shows up an hour later in a chariot of fire drawn by dragons. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So way cooler than the uh, Disney version. Yeah, Disney. I did the maths on the seven league boots. And for him to travel 12,000 leagues instantly would mean that he'd have to travel between a quarter and a fifth of the speed of light. I don't think it's worth going into, but I don't think they had their geography down pat. Yep, well. Yeah. Even a round trip in an hour means that the dwarf in the chariot must have been traveling an average of 133,344 kilometers an hour. God. Yeah, so these tales are not scientifically rigorous. Mm. What, if you're going to say instantly, why don't you just call them instant boots? Seven league boots puts a value on it, and then <laughs> I have to be the guy going, um, excuse me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, last thing. We're at the end of the Sleeping Beauty section. This is what a uh, section I've called Sleeping Beauty Surprise. Oh, I thought that was the surprise. Okay. No, no, no. There's a whole section called Sleeping Beauty Surprise. I'm going right. to say a whole section. 108 words. We're going to get through this very quickly. So uh, if I can pull a... Uh, what's his name? Not MacGyver. Who's the other guy? Who's the guy? Columbo. If I can pull okay. a Columbo for a second and say just one more thing about Sleeping Beauty. In Perot's version, the prince refuses to marry Sleeping Beauty and keeps their relationship a secret because his mother, the queen, quote, came from a family of ogres. Oh! I told you we'd have Shrek revelations. Oh, Shrek revelations! And it was even whispered in court that she herself had ogreish oh. tendencies. Which means she eats people. That's what ogre... Ogre just means a cannibal. It's not a monster in these mm. um, old fairy tales. So this is a reverse Ogres Shrek. people too. Where the, the prince saves the fairy... Yeah, the fairy saves the lady and, and has to protect her from the ogre queen rather than the other uh, way around, right? Yeah, uh, the king who, who only married... The reason he married an ogre queen is because she's loaded. Yeah. So he married her for lots of money. Which is another thing with these fairy tales, I realise, is that we're putting all this true love thing on. But when they were written back in the feudal times, true love had nothing to do with it. Oh, no. Not so at all. that is a modern imposition. Yep. He only married the queen for her money, then he dies. Mm-hmm. So the prince becomes the king, the mm-hmm. one who saves Sleeping Beauty. And he makes his marriage public, as well as their two children that they've had in secret all mm-hmm. these years. Good lord. Because he's like, yes, I am king now, so I can come out of the woodwork. He then immediately goes on holiday. <laughs> okay, Skomo. <laughs> At which point, the queen mother, the ogre, sets about trying to eat his children. <laughs> And the, the cook, um, the way they get out of this um, is the cook substitutes other animals. So she's like, cook that kid. And then he hides the kid. And, and is like, a chicken. <laughs> you know, that's better. And this is, this is a thing. I think this is in one of the Snow Whites or something. It's one of the other fairy tales ends like this. So obviously this is a trope that's got like mm. mixed up somewhere. That's fun. Um, 
that is the end of the Sleeping Beauty section with the surprise reverse Shrek at the end. So yes, but that's just one of the fairy tales they encounter. We also have, there's mentions of Rapunzel, mm-hmm. which has a sorceress in it. Um, you got Rump- Rumpelstiltskin. I have nothing I, to say about that. I even feel like I know what Rumpelstiltskin's about. He eats kids? No, no. So Rumpelstiltskin is the um, lady who, I think she's locked in a tower and told she can't leave or something until she spins the hay into straw. And okay. then Rumpelstiltskin shows up and he's like a magical leprechaun man who says I can do that uh, but you have to promise me like your marriage or your firstborn or something right and well, she agrees temptation and, story and says the only way that you you can get out of this is if you guess my real name and she can't guess his real name but then she he overhears the, I think maybe the birds tell her or something in one of these versions but <laughs> someone overhears his name and tells her and then she knows his name is Rumpelstiltskin and then he turns to wood or something um, okay I heard somewhere, and I couldn't find this when I was looking, that because at the end he gets really mad and he stamps his foot on the ground until his foot gets stuck into the ground. Mm-hmm. And there's something about this as a dildo to bring it all back around. Um, oh. <laughs> there, there's something somewhere I read about how Rumpelstiltskin is... Like, the Rumpelstiltskin is a dildo because there's an older version where he gets stuck in her Uh, or something. I will do more research into that and clarify in part two, but I couldn't find anything. Um, I don't really have anything to say about them. These are just the um, fairy tales they bring up in the book. (laughs) There's also Goldilocks and the Three Bears, uh, which was first published in narrative form by the romantic poet Robert Southey in 1837. He's one of your guys, yeah? Well... He's the conservative antagonist of one of my guys. Yeah, he's the, <laughs> he's the one who calls them the satanic school. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and then he mockingly writes poetry about them. But he did, uh, Coleridge did marry his sister, so, like, they were friends at the start, and then he became a traitor to the cause. Uh, but yeah, in that version, rather than Goldilocks, it is an impudent bad old woman who huh. breaks into the house. Yeah. Hmm. So again, we're getting this trope. The only one, other one that gets like an extended examination. <laughs> this was is, my favorite. Yeah, Red Riding Hood. That's my it's favorite funny. as well. <laughs> um, I don't have that much to say about it, just because I think the scene sort of speaks for itself. Yeah, yeah, because I like Granny chastising the woodsman for not taking care of the thing. The, the woodsman, for the record, is introduced as the savior figure in the Grimm's version. He's yep. not part of it earlier, so they're introducing this um, patriarchal savior figure. Mm-hmm. Though again, we have the idea that the wolf's nature is determined by his body. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, he's being forcibly shapeshifted into something else. But yeah. and, and this is a thing with the wizards that mm-hmm. we'll talk about in next book. But they have the saying, the leopard can't change its shorts. Oh, that was in Academicals as well. Right. Well, that's the thing all the wizards yeah. are saying all the time. And obviously, that's the, the leopard can't change its spots. spots yeah. So I guess what Pratchett's saying is like the leopard can't change its spots, but it can change its shorts. But it shouldn't change its shorts because... It is made of spots. I'm not really sure what he's... Yeah, not sure. We'll think on that. Uh, It says in Witches Abroad that no one had ever tried to talk to the wolf and that the grandmother was similarly isolated from society because the villagers had shunned her after mistaking her for a witch due to her hook nose and lack of teeth. So this is playing on the prejudice of, like, the Black Anna story we were talking about and things. Yeah, I mean, all this is in the book. I don't have anything to say about it. It was just a cool she scene. She probably had a cat friend as well, who was her only friend, and they murdered well, as the wolf a familiar. Definitely ate that, right? Yeah, and used it. Yeah, nothing to say about this. I just could not bring it up because it's such. A, it's good. It's such a cool scene. All right, the big one. The big one that is not the big one because it's like one throwaway gag in um, in the book. But I went down a real rabbit hole with the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> And now I'm going to subject you to it. So yeah, another another classic fairy tale encountered by the witches is Elfink Balm's The Wizard of Oz from 1900. Um, and this, uh, I do think, even though this is a throwaway joke in Witches Abroad where Nanny gets hit on the house with the head and she has uh, the reinforced hat, right? Mm-hmm. 
I think this is worth camping out on because the Wizard of Oz is so significant to the portrayal of witches. Yep. Like, when you think of witches, I don't know, for me... Wicked the, witch, good witch. The wicked witch of the West go, yep. going, fly on my pretties. Like, that's yeah. the first thing you Those get Those monkeys to. were terrifying. The monkeys are terrifying. Yeah, and in the conclusion to her 1996 book, The Witch in History, uh, which we discussed in the previous episode, Diane Perkis observes that, despite the subtleties of radical feminists, historians, and modern witches, the dominant image of the witch is still a shrieking hag on a broomstick, mm. akin to the wicked witch of the West from the 1939 film adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, directed by that's it it's not even that it's the book it's the film yeah and this is specifically um in witches abroad it is the film they're referencing yeah because in the book this is the i don't know if there's a literary term for it but the doki doki fact right the doki doki fact is that mario brothers 2 was originally doki doki panic in japan and then they just put mario in it when it came to america this is different mario 2 but this is the trivia that someone tells you anytime you bring up a subject right this is the doki doki fact about the adaptation of the wizard of oz is that in the book it's silver shoes not ruby shoes uh-huh. so when granny has the red slippers which she has on the covers of all the witches books mm-hmm. um that that is a reference to the movie. So yeah, it's the movie that's had the cultural impact rather than the books. Indeed, much of the iconography he's playing with, the ruby slippers, which are silver in the book, as we said, the famous line, we're not in Kansas anymore, and the ding-dong song aren't in the book. Mm-hmm. As Thomas Shaw points out in his chapter on humour and the neo-broke in Discworld from the Narrative World's collection, here we once again have a quotation of an original that does not exist. Mm. So the Grimms are accounted for in Discworld, that's why we got the fairy tales. But Baum and, and films and The Wizard of Oz are not. We've got this idea of the quantum resonance that does get picked up on in Lords of Ladies, it, it is sort of the out-of-place one here. It's, there's less of an issue for me than the um, Hill stuff in Weird Sisters because it's not like there is an author analog and it's before him, so he hasn't written it yet. It's just in the nebula, but mm-hmm. there is a distinction there. Yeah, ironically, the, the film's so successful when Baum, was, he all he wanted to be was a filmmaker and he founded his own studio and made all these Aww. Wizard of Oz adaptations and went bankrupt, then died, then, then the film made got film. made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, how do you feel about the Wizard of Oz? Like, I mean, I enjoyed it when I was a kid. Yeah. I remember having watching it at my grandparents a lot, and like writing little short stories about it. And, oh, you went that but far, I, but I hated it because I was going to be a famous author when I was a child. Oh, right. <laughs> um, but I hated the monkeys; like, they genuinely terrified me. I think like, that's a, a lot. Yeah, common thing. I used to make that's what I remembered. I used to make Grand turn it off at a certain point after. A oh, while. okay. Yeah, I'd watch the nice bits, and then when it got too scary, I'd be like, "Turn it off now." Yeah, color. <laughs> <call off. laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yes, it's important to distinguish between the book and the film versions. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a whole series of Oz books. There's like 40 books and they're still being Jesus written. Jesus Christ. There keeps being ends to the series. Mm-hmm. But it was very popular, so he had to keep, keep going. Right? Yeah. And he was broke otherwise, so he was doing it fair. So originally it was meant to be a standalone. Then it was popular. And it's like the Frankenstein thing where it became a, bro- a, a theater thing. Yep. Yeah. There's that. So then he wrote a couple of sequels and it was meant to be like two and three. Mm-hmm. But then they were like, nah, write more. The second one is really cool. The first book's just the film, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of differences, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but it's the general story is there. The second book, no Dorothy. What? You've got a new character whose name I cannot remember. <laughs> um, and it's a, little, it's a little boy, and he, he goes to Oz, and he has all these adventures, and what happens there is that Oz gets overtaken by this army of, like, rogue pirate women. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
from and then he goes off and he steals this magic belt and they come back and all throughout the book there's a whole thing about there's the princess oz ozma right who's the ruler and she's been missing because there was a witch and we'll talk about her in a second who put a spell on her or something Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the book, they're like, oh, this is great. You've, you've saved the city of Oz, but where's the, um, the princess? Mm-hmm. The little boy is the princess. Oh. Got turned into a boy for safekeeping. Aww. And then becomes... For safekeeping. A princess. Okay. So there's some gender swapping oh. things going on there. Also, when we went, yes, about the, the army of, of women. Baum, who's the author, he was married to Mal Gage, who was the daughter of the suffrage leader Matilda Gage, who is the namesake of the Matilda effect, the idea that women don't get credit for things, what you were talking uh, about yeah. before, um, and, and wrote some books about feminist and suffragette history and stuff. So he was married to cool. the daughter of, of a major suffragette. So there's these like feminist, even though he's sort of making funny, fun of it with the, they're the bad guys, the army that overtakes the thing. He is putting these ideas and things in there. So there's a lot of stuff. The second book's really good. And then it just becomes every book is starts off with some really interesting, like weird imagery at the start. Like it's, it's absurdist, like sort of Alice in Wonderland mm. sort of stuff. So the first few chapters are really interesting. And then it's just like, and here are all your favorite characters. They went back to the thing and the scarecrow showed up and they were like, Oh my God, scarecrow, we love you. Uh, okay. Because he didn't want to write them anymore. Yeah. And then I just finished on the way here. I was listening to the last hour of the audiobook uh-huh. of the last book of the original series, which I think is book six or seven, right. Emerald City of Oz, which finishes by um, Dorothy and her family move to Oz. They fend off the Gnome King's invasion. And then there's an epigraph which says, and then they decided to make the entire city of Oz invisible and unfindable on any map. And there were no more communications from the world of Oz. And everyone lived happily ever after. It's we like- never heard of anything about it ever again. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Then he runs out of money uh, and starts writing more books. And prequels. I think, I think there's there's fourteen original poor books. Bastard. So I've read these like first seven. Mm. Then there's fourteen. Then he dies, and then a whole uh, other authors continue on the series. And there's like forty of them. Mm-hmm. No one knows about these books. They only know the film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so there's some interesting stuff going on there. Like I said, with with the suffragette stuff and some of the feminist undertones and things. In his 1983 book, Fairy Tales and the Art of Subversion, Zipes observes that by the end of the 19th century, the fairy tale was no longer to be like a mirror. It was no longer to be like the mirror, mirror on the wall, reflecting the cosmic bourgeois standards of beauty and virtue that applied to the unadulterated and pure. Instead, being cracked into sharp edged radical parts by authors such as George MacDonald, who's the guy who wrote the Goblin story that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, who we probably should know if he keeps coming up, uh, Oscar Wilde and Alphang Baum, who have in turn become known as classical fairy tale writers themselves. Mm-hmm. Also, just put that big long quote in there, because obviously we have lots of mirror stuff. And The Wizard of Oz represents a deliberate attempt by Baum to revise the fairy tale tradition. So in the intro to the first Wizard of Oz book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, uh, he notes that folklore, legends, myths, and fairy tales have followed childhood through the ages and he argues that the winged fairies of Grimm and Anderson have brought more happiness to childish hearts than all other human creations. Thought, okay, all right. Yet he also argues that the time has come for a series of newer wonder tales in which the stereotype genie, dwarf, and fairy are eliminated, together with all the horrible and blood-curdling incident devised by their authors to point a fearsome moral to each tale. And he therefore writes The Wonderful Wizard of Oz as a modernized fairy tale in which the wonderment and joy are retained, but the heartaches and nightmares are left out. <laughs> now, you've said the thing about the flying monkeys being yeah, scary in the movie. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say that there are heartache and nightmares left out of Wizard of Oz. 
It's grisly. I mean, that's the movie version. Which Someone falls on a something like a house falls on a, a house lady. falls on a lady in the book. You know the Tin Man. Yeah, he's just a Tin Man in the movie. Yeah. Well, the way the Tin Man got no, to be the Tin Man, no, is he was a woodsman who chopped off bits of his body mm. and then replaced uh, it with tin. Replaced it with tin, but he kept chopping away his body because I think a witch cursed his axe. Oh no! And he chops away his entire body, oh. including his head, and rebuilds himself. So out of tin Never mind. I'll leave it alone. I'll leave it. I don't know if it's Frankenstein because he's cutting himself down and then rebuilding. But it's there. There are automatons and stuff in yeah. the. There's a TikTok robot, like a clockwork robot man and stuff in the later books. Mm. They're also explicitly sent on a quest. Like, do they send them on the quest to kill the Wicked Witch of Oz in the first book? Doesn't don't they get taken by the monkeys? I don't remember. Because in the book, that feels familiar. When though. they go visit the Wizard of Oz, he specifically says, "I will send you home if you go and murder the witch." Oh yes. Right. So, yeah, you're right. Grizzly. And then the Wicked Witch defends herself by attacking them with armies of wolves and crows and bees, <laughs> which the Tin Man cuts in half, like he's cutting wolves in half. Yeah, so in the book, rather than, like in the film, it's an accident, and Dorothy spills the water on the witch and then she melts. In the book, she very deliberately discovers the witch's weakness to water and plots her to murder her and throws mm-hmm. water over and her. And then they recognise for the film that Dorothy would be more sympathetic heroic yes. character if it was well, accidental. sympathetic, but also passive and docile. Yeah. In his 2002 analysis of the fairy tale's influence in The Wizard of Oz, Stephen Swan Jones observes that since Baum's heroine is allowed to get angry and act decisively on her feelings, she therefore constitutes a positive and non-existent representation. That's mm. what I was saying. Jones also notes that while Bounds Dorothy uses the bucket of water as a weapon, much as the male protagonists of other fairy tales use their swords, Fleming's Dorothy can only act in consonance with sexist and patriarchal notions that women are fundamentally not hostile and aggressive. She is an active female protagonist in the books, whereas, yeah, she everything that happens to her, her in the film mm-hmm. is by accident. Mm-hmm. And she apologises to the witch, right? Um, and yes, as you said, it begins with Dorothy crushing an old woman to death with her house. So I think you really missed the mark with the non-grizzly fairy tale, especially if you watch Well, the- if the good guys don't get hurt, that's the point, right? Yeah. So Bam is sort of revising the fairy tale here himself. And one of the things that he revises is the image of the witch. As Zipes observes, Baum refused to comply with the standard notions of sexuality and sex roles and questioned the restrictions placed on the imagination of children in traditional fairy tales. And yeah, this is most apparent in his treatment of witches. So you've got four witches, right? The cardinal directions. You know? Yep. So the first one, you've got the Wicked Witch of the East, which mm-hmm. is the one the house falls on. Mm-hmm. And it's said that she has held all the munchkins in bondage for many years, making uh, making them sleep for her night and day. Jesus. So we've got munchkins, not dwarves. So it's a nationality rather than a race okay. in The Wizard of Oz. Yep. But yeah, there's this idea that she enslaved the munchkins. This is something in fairy tales with the mother figure. Mm-hmm. That the mother is always putting their children to work mm-hmm. and enslaving them. So this is how the, the witch is a mother I figure. I see. But yeah, also like a hundred years almost, or 80 years at least, before Pratchett, we have an image of a good witch. Um, which is pretty revolutionary, I guess. I mean, ahead of its time. Ahead of its time, like we, we've got the godmothers and things in the traditional fairy tales, but this is someone who is called a witch, mm-hmm. being good in the, mm-hmm. the Good Witch of the North. And I've got the picture of her there. Um, she seems nice. We, she seems nice, but she looks like a witch. She has the pointy hat. Yeah. She's white, not black, right? Well, she's yellow in that picture, but yeah. Her outfit is white. All oh, right. Yes. Whereas in the film version, she's like the pretty fairy princess thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the book, no, she is a witch. She's an old woman in a, in a thing. She's a fairy godmother sort of figure. Um, so yeah, she's the witch of the north. She introduces herself and says, 
I'm a good witch, and the people love me, and I'm not as powerful as the wicked witch who ruled here, or I should have set these people free myself. <laughs> that really gets her out of that. Nice. So I don't know if something's going on there with the um, powers well, of, of evil and, and good. Yeah, it, I think also it morally gets her out of not challenging the witch if she, well, if she was good. Yes. Then she, yeah. But there is an implication that, um, like with Lily, Lilith is more powerful than Granny Weatherwax because she gave in to the evil power. So I don't know. That, that's obviously reading into it, but there's something going on there. And Dorothy responds and says, but I thought all witches were wicked. <laughs> and she explains, oh no, that is a great mistake. There are only four witches in the land of Oz. And two of them, those who live in the north and the south, are good witches. I know this is true, for I am one myself and cannot be mistaken. So there is a balance between good and evil in the world. Yeah. Well, we've just um, undone that balance because because this is is, yeah. But Dorothy herself is a witch. Okay. She gets the shoes. Oh yeah. Right. And later in the book, she becomes a princess of Oz. Mm -hmm. She is explicitly called a noble sorceress by the Good Witch of the North Mm. because she wears the silver shoes and has killed the Wicked Witch, but also because she has white in her frock and only witches and sorceresses wear white. (sighs) This is why I was pointing to the picture before. Yeah. Um, But we compare that to Granny's Black. This Mm -hmm. is a performative aspect of of witches, but it's interesting that, yeah, witches here are are white. Mm. So, yeah, we have good witches and a good witch protagonist almost 100 years before Pratchett. Nice. Interesting stuff. The other witch you have is the Good Witch of the South, who is Glenda the Good Witch in the books. Mm-hmm. In the movies, the Good Witch of the North is Glenda the Good Witch, but here she's the Good Witch of the South. Um, and her color is red. She, yep. has, she has red hair. She has a red body. And she's the most powerful of all the witches, so I don't know why she didn't go in and stop the... Uh, yeah, it's slavery. Uh, and she, but she has a reputation as a beautiful woman who is kind to everyone. Except the And munchkin. knows how to keep young in spite of the many years she has lived. Oh, God. So, she's eating hearts of people. <laughs> well, I wanted to connect this to the... Um, the article, the Captaville article we've talked about in the last couple about how Pratchett represents old women mm. as being powerful and capable. Yeah. Here, the most powerful is the youngest. Which yeah. is young and pretty, right? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we have the Wicked Witch of the West. And there's the picture over there. Quite different from the... It's a long hat. Um, but yeah, the giant hat I thought was funny, but she's like short and shriveled. Full of almost. anger. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't bleed. For she was so wicked that the blood in her had dried up many years before. No grisly stuff in this book, though. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing is that that's another comment on her being old, isn't it? Right, yeah. yes. And something that's completely left out of all the movies is that she has a golden cap that grants her three uh, wishes. One of which is the ability to control the flying monkeys. Oh, of all the animals, why would you go, you know what? Controlling monkeys. And uh, Dorothy ends up taking this cap and bringing it to the Good Witch in the South. But she, when she tries it on her own head, she finds it fits exactly. So mm. this is sort of like a Cinderella thing, right? Yep. But rather than to be a princess, it's to be a witch. witch. So there's something Actually going on in these that. books. Yeah. yeah. That's why I'm spending so much time on The Wizard of Oz here, because I do think... There's a lot of this informing Pratchett or mm-hmm. preempting Pratchett. Nut- uh, Nutson observes that a central theme of Oz is that wherever you are searching for is found within yourself. No one else can give it to you. Yeah. This is similar to Granny's position that it's pointless to search outside yourself, that you are your me. Okay. So yeah, there's so much going on in The Wizard of Oz that yeah. is directly adapted into... Which is abroad. Which the whole point is that they go on a journey to a city somewhere. So yeah. Yeah, right. They're following yeah. Yellow Brick Road, of yeah. course. I feel like there's a joke in there about yellow bricks at some point as well. Yeah, there is. Yeah. But you're right. The whole way they're on the road. And that's like a fairy tale or mythological form. But I can't remember the list of those fairy tale rewritings. One was using the structure. Oh, yeah. And things. So he's... Repatterning. Yeah, repatterning. He's using... He's alluding to the structure of Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Even though he only has the the house thing. Mm. The other magic user you have, of course, is the Wizard of Oz. Mm Mm-hmm. 
who turns out not to be actually a magic user in the film. Oh, well, in the book as well. Yeah. He is a magician from Earth who's yep. travelled to Oz. Yep. And has fooled everyone to thinking he's a wizard with mm-hmm. his magic tricks. So he's using headology, right? Yeah. He's manipulating people. He doesn't actually perform magic. Yeah, nice. And Nutson suggests that it could even be... Uh, could it even be an allusion to Lily's power being an illusion? An allusion to the illusion? Just like the wizard's power is an illusion? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, Lilith has actual power, but it's not real power. So, yeah. Yeah. So, again, there's so many ties to Pratchett. Oh, and, and the other thing they have is, oh, no, Oz being a magicless wizard. He's doing headology like Granny Weatherwax. He's also a magicless wizard, which is Rincewind. Yeah, true. So, huh. yeah. Hey. Pratchett's lifting or, or continuing so much stuff from the Wizard of Oz. It's all coming together. But the point about the Wizard of Oz is there's still a hierarchy. There's mm-hmm. still this idea that the Wizard of Oz rules mm-hmm. over all the witches. Yeah. So in the first sequel, The Marvelous Land of Oz, that's the good one I was talking about, mm-hmm. from 1904, that begins by introducing its antagonist, Mombi, who is not exactly a witch, since the Witch of the North had forbidden any other witch to exist in her dominions, making it unlawful to be more than a sorceress or at most a wizardess. Mm, there you go. Yeah, again, they come back to our conversation in Equal Rights mm-hmm. about sorceresses and, and things not being witches, but also this idea that a witch is an occupation, a position. It's like professor. Yeah. People keep asking me now that I got my PhD, like, oh, so what have you got to do to be a professor? I'm like, Get employed. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a job. Ah, uh, yes. Here's one for you. So I was talking about Ozma. She's the boy. Mm -hmm. And it's revealed she's the princess and they transform into the princess. Now, Zypes says that Ozma the hermaphrodite is a symbol of matriarchy and guarantees the development of socialist humanism in Oz by regulating magic, especially by banning black magic. So we have a hermaphroditic figure who brings balance to the magic. That's pretty cool. This is your whole thing, Yeah, that's Brunhilde. So Brunhilde is Ozma, not Brunhilde. Yeah. So yeah, as I said, with, with the book series, there have been lots of continuations and inversions of The Wizard of Oz. The most famous of which is the 1995 book Wicked by Gregory Maguire, which served as the inspiration for the record-setting play of the same name, which I assume people are familiar with through cultural osmosis at least. These fairy tale inversions and revisions, it's kind of Maguire's thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But Wicked's really interesting because... Unlike most earlier reinterpretations, which focused on Dorothy and her ancestors, Maguire mm-hmm. makes his focus the Wicked Witch of the West mm-hmm. and is the most successful adaptation for it. Mm-hmm. So there's something here where we don't want to hear about Dorothy anymore. We want to hear about the witches. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, comes a couple of years after Pratchett uh, does Witches Abroad and Weird Sisters and after there's these fairy tale revisions. So there's mm-hmm. something going on around this time where stuff happens. Dark heroes. You got anything? I just think well, that's, that's about the time where culturally we start to get really interested interested in dark heroes so it um, makes sense that we start being interested in witches and the backstory of witches uh is there anything like why because obviously like i understand that wicked comes after pratchett which comes after carter and everyone else doing these things but is there a reason why is it just mm, the, the i think there's kind there? of texts are starting to reappear or appear again in modern form like you've got the vampire stories you've got Fancy story, yeah, exactly. Like um, th- those start to appear and gain traction in popular popular culture again. Second wave feminism, right? Mm-hmm. This is why now we have voices like Angela Carter and Sherry S. Tepper and stuff to to do feminist revisions of fairy tales. It makes sense why they weren't around before then. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, I don't know why dark heroes. And there's not much of a relation between Wicked and and Witches Abroad. Obviously, it came after. Um, but I did read it. 
for mm-hmm. this, and and it was quite good. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by it. it's it's. Ma- I've told you this before, but its major problem is that it is set in Oz mm-hmm. because there's lots of sexy sex scenes with the Wicked Witch of the West, which when you all you have in your head is fly, my pretties, mm. and I'm melting. Yeah, you are. Um, mm. Is difficult. Whereas if I think it had have been set in its own fantasy universe, it would have worked a lot better. But then by the same token, it wouldn't have been as successful because you wouldn't be able to market it as being our interpretation of the Wizard of Oz. What was really interesting to me and why I want to talk about it a bit here is the whole book is about animal rights activism. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Wicked Witch of the West, she's friends with her name in the book is Alphaba. Mm-hmm. And she's friends with Linda the Good Witch. Mm-hmm. They're in high school or college together. It's like Harry Potter magic school, but a year before that was written. Um, but yeah, she gets caught up in this whole animal activism movement because one of the things in the books is animals can talk in Oz. Mm-hmm. Right? You got the cowardly eye obviously mm-hmm. but in the later books like Dorothy has her, her chicken who's always been her hen Belina who's mm. being threatened with being turned into dinner and things mm-hmm. and then they go to Oz and Belina becomes a character who can talk and things mm-hmm. and yeah I've, I've read these seven books the original arc and they're still talking about eating meat and stuff and there's not all this animal right there is a character called the uh, the very hungry tiger mm-hmm. um, who becomes friends with the cowardly lion and he is a vegetarian mm-hmm. but he's a tiger so he's, he's very hungry <laughs> yeah. but he has morals Mm-hmm. So he starves. Uh, there's also a group of foxes in one of the books who are angry at Aesop for right. making them sound I mean, yeah. <laughs> mischievous and cunning, right? So we're dealing with the way fables and, and fairy tales have shaped culture. Also, uh, in, in Wicked, Alphaba's mother is the wife of a seventh son of a seventh son. Mm. So we just have another just, recurring yep. trope, but she's also drugged with a green potion and raped, and that's why she has a green right. sweet daughter. Yeah. Wow. And you also have a traveling uh, glass blower is Alphaba's stepdad or father um, who blows the mother a mirror to look into. Uh-huh. So, I mean, obviously the mirror is a fairy tale trope that we will talk about in part two. Oh, and this is my favorite bit that I didn't put in the thing, but you do have a reference to um, a broom. Mm-hmm. When she goes to find the broom, it says it moves in a naughty way between her thighs. Oh. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> so that's wicked. Nothing to do with Pratchett, but he's tied up with fairy tale revisions and I think is interesting. The other noteworthy thing about The Wizard of Oz is that it's a distinctly American fairy tale. Right before this, we're dealing with German, mm-hmm. French, English, things as well. So this is European culture, European morals, mm-hmm. this feudal system, these ideas of marriage and things. Whereas, yeah, Oz is is an American fairy tale. Um, but it's also a distinctly anti-American fairy tale. Okay. Uh, in his 1994 chapter, Oz as American Myth, Zipes observes that both the book and the film version of Wizard of Oz depict America as a failure. Conversely, Oz is depicted as the symbolical embodiment of the longing for a better life, mm-hmm. as the utopian realm in which justice is attained, and this especially comes through in the later books, and that only through experiencing the strange utopia of Oz and learning about aliens and other ways does Kansas become bearable. So it's a utopian fairy tale. It's very cool. Um, the, weirdly, um, the most cited article on The Wizard of Oz, like if you look it up online, is this article about how it's a metaphor for the silver versus the gold standard in the early 1900s. Right. And there's this whole crazy theory... And apparently this has become a thing in economics that people teach this, where the yellow brick road is the gold road, and you have to follow the gold to the riches, right. and you got to stay away from the silver and, and all this, and the cowardly lion's meant to be the representation of this guy who was campaigning for the silver standard or something that right. was called a coward in the newspapers. 
no, it, it fits, but you're just like, there's no way he wrote a book about this. <laughs> and there's no way he wrote a book about that. This has been thoroughly disproven. But also, just whoever came up with this theory, this is why it is important to read all seven books, not mm-hmm. just the first one, is very clearly stated in the later books, where as Oz becomes more of an inversion of America, is that there is no money in Oz. Uh-huh. Dorothy ends up moving her entire family to Oz because they're gonna, their farm's going to be repossessed because they can't work mm-hmm. and the American dream is a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can't make anything of yourself. And she says, why don't we go to Oz where they have socialism? <laughs> and everyone's nice. happy. So, yeah, that, that money allegory is Born, complete trash. Born's just, like, really angry. He's got to keep writing books. He's like, this family, they won't have to, though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, although in 1905, he claimed he had purchased a Californian island where he intended to build an Oz-themed amusement park called Ozland. Okay. There appears to be no evidence that he ever actually purchase this island, nor that the island he describes even exists, and I'm struggling to even verify the claim itself. I can only find secondary references, Mm -hmm. but also it's from 1904, so maybe Mm -hmm. he just said it somewhere and no one wrote it down. But this preempts Disneyland, right? Yep. Which we're going to talk a lot about Disneyland in part two, because genuine is Disneyland. Huh. Yeah. Disneyland is a kingdom where fairy tales are real. Oh, yeah, duh. And and this is tied up in um, Simulacras, who... So yes, we will talk more about genuine and Disneyland and the Americanization of fairy tales in part two. Part two! Which hopefully will come out in a couple of weeks. Couple of weeks! Um, <laughs> Alice as well would truly have not. I know, I'm trying to end on my note. Yeah, but you haven't said anything for like the last 40 minutes. There wasn't minutes. anything to add. You just had to do your Wizard of Oz oh, rant. I'm like, right. I have nothing. I have nothing. It's like the orc thing. I'm like, cool. Uh, but... but yeah, any last thoughts on the things we have covered this week? No. No. All right. Well, next time we will talk about genuine and everything after. Bye! 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 And we're clear. That's all for this episode of Unseen Academicals. There'll be another one along in a month, but if you can't wait until then, you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all the episodes a full month in advance, along with any bonus episodes or specials that we end up doing. If you're after more of us, Alice hosts her own podcast of The Devil's Party, which traces the development of the satanic hero throughout romantic and gothic literature. Links to a bibliography for today's show, along with a fully referenced and footnoted transcript should be available in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for some amusing outtakes. So I went on a marathon yesterday and watched all the, the Wizard of Oz movies where I didn't watch all of them because it has weirdly for a movie that we're saying is like perhaps the most culturally significant film of all time like it's not a franchise no well, um, I mean that maybe is what yeah. <laughs> there are sequels which I think will come as a surprise to a lot of people right um, and there there's a lot of them but none of them have been successful mm. except for the original and then they didn't immediately make a sequel to it like I guess they um, that's not how they did things in those days but there's actually an Australian film called Oz, a rock and roll road movie from 1976, which is about the land of Oz being Australia. The music's by Ross Wilson, who is the lead singer of Daddy Cool. Okay. I watched the trailer for this. Not a chance. No. I'm never watching that okay. film. Okay. I was going to say, that could go one or two ways. Oh, no, no, no. It looks completely insufferable. <laughs> All right. What I did watch was The Wiz from 1978. Do yeah. you know about The Wiz? No. The Wiz is the all-black Broadway version. Oh, cool. And the movie version is starring Diana Ross as Dorothy. She's like a 40-year-old woman playing Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow. Uh, okay. And just, yeah, a whole bunch of like black singers and comedians. It's it's a lot. It would be. Michael Jackson's in it. <laughs> Michael Jackson's in it and he's a weird dancing scarecrow. 
the first the first hour was a bit rough. Mm. And the second hour is pretty cool. Okay. And um, then the particular the depiction of the uh, wicked witch Eveline is uh, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The other one I watched because um, I've seen there's the one from I think it's 2013 or something by Sam Raimi. It's directed by the guy who did Evil Dead. So mm. I went and saw it with my friend. And we're like, this is nothing like Evil Dead. <laughs> uh, it's also very bad. It has a uh, Mila Kunis and what's his name? Mm. That, I mean, that's um, enough. Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> I cannot stand her, but she plays the, the Wicked Witch in that. Um, there's also Return to Oz, which is like from, I think it's 1980-something, 86, 87, which follows the books, which I'm going to talk about the book series a lot more closely. Uh, that one's really cool, but it's like, it's a full-on like children's horror movie, but that one's a lot of fun. The point about that one is it stars as Dorothy as an actual young child this time. It stars Feruza Bulk. Right. Do you know who Feruza Bulk is? No. Feruza Bulk is a very distinctive actress from the 90s. Her most famous role is as Nancy in The Craft. Do you know the craft it's a horror movie it was actually remade really recently um the craft is your um girl power witch movie oh about there's like witches who they form a coven and they start experimenting with witchcraft but one of them is actually a witch and the other ones are pretending and nancy is the leader of the bad witches because it's like it's like mean girls but with witches okay exactly like mean girls but with witches i like it already so frizzabalk plays um, not Lindsay Lohan the other one the mean one yeah the mean um, one she plays the mean girl yep. she's like her the leader of the thing and she becomes the all powerful witch who sells her soul to the devil oh, and things no. and then she has to defeat her and stuff so the, the main character who is the little girl in the return to Oz goes on to do that which is first line of the fairy well, queen is a dick joke. never know. The first line, The very reckon? first line, there was a gentle knight pricking on the plane. <laughs> it's exactly what it now, is, though. hang on. Is that a dick joke? 110%. Or is this one of Patrick and um, Peter's things where they're like, you can't say seminal because it means sperm. No, no. 110%. This is a dick joke that then Spencer keeps coming back to throughout. It's fantastic. Well, brings, uh, you know, Because he's making of fun thumbs. of the testosterone fuel posturing. Something this way comes by the pricking of my thumbs. Yeah. Is that a hand job? I don't know. <laughs> what well, is by your logic? <laughs> no, no, not my logic. This is Peter and his very good understanding of the English language. It's, I don't know about that. No, it is. I promise you. <laughs> That's you believe so nothing much. else. That is yeah. it. <laughs> we're talking about this because we did spend almost an hour talking about um which is showing broomsticks up their butts i mean episode. to be fair our supervisor's really into 18th century dildos so so have you seen his blog I've post, seen about the blog the post. <laughs> patrick has a blog post about they discovered it's like the oldest dildo ever right yeah. in, in a toilet in a nunnery yep. or something yep that's it yeah i read that and then i used to do the the sword fighting yeah so i went and, and they were talking about the 17th century and tracing all this history back for it and i was like guys <laughs> <laughs> and we had to name we used to do like fighting at the end and we'd break up into teams and have, have bouts and where you'd pick a team name and I never cared but that week we were the 17th century dildos that's very good yeah. <laughs> see I did a very different thing where I found I saw the blog post and I was at home at the time and I was like hey dad this guy's gonna be my supervisor next <laughs> year <laughs> they met yet not yet okay. I think next time around right. and yeah. you, you still want to introduce him oh, after that they both they both want to hang out yeah but one does research into 17th century dildos Dad's a plumber. He'd be very interested. Like, that's why I showed it in to him. In dildos? Yeah. He, he finds that stuff fascinating. <laughs> Just, like, generally. Laying pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Anything found in toilets, he's really into. <laughs> Like a, he, has, he has a running joke, right? Where Does he know like, what's regularly found in toilets? He tells, he tells people he has a pubic hair collection, and he doesn't. But it's his thing at parties being like, yeah, I keep them in matchboxes. I've got all these matchboxes at home full of pubic hair I picked up from public toilets. <laughs> That's why I'm the way I am. No, no, you're not. <laughs>
There's no genetic determinism. <laughs> I, I hope not. They haven't shown me your pube collection. I only your dick candles. <laughs> Which are? They were a gift? Yeah, but you don't have to put them on your kitchen bench. <laughs> I think they're fun there, though, aren't they? Yeah, but own it. Stop putting this on Rowan. Like, yeah, um, they are my dick candles. <laughs> <laughs> Need some art. True love leaves an awful taste in your mouth. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, please make jokes. Like, it helps if you oh. are funny. <laughs> I mean, it's not a nice joke. Hey. Oh, that's pretty nice. It's gross. Leave that in. Well, that's how you get the gross taste, isn't it? Uh. <laughs> I'm just trying to work out what sex position the surprise reverse trick is. When you take the earwax out of your ear. Yeah, I was, I was trying to do an ear thing. <laughs> And you shove it in their butt, and I'm being recorded. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs>